Welcome to the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show, the premier online startup pitch contest where top climate tech and impact founders pitch VCs looking to fund world positive companies. If you're a founder looking for funding or a climate or impact investor interested in joining and investing alongside forward VCs, syndicate, and companies that move the world forward, please visit thestartuptank.com for more details and to apply. But now it's time to enter the tank. It looks like we are live. Welcome to the Startup Tank, Climate Investor Pitch Show, folks. If this is your first time, thanks for coming. You know Shark Tank, you know Dragon's Den. Well, this is similar. We bring on the world's top climate companies, pre-seed to pre-series A, every two weeks, Mondays, 5 to 7 p.m. CET. I'm your host, Matt Ward, founder of Forward VC, where if you've heard of us, a little bit of everything in the climate community. And if you haven't, you can find out more about us on our site at forward.vc. We run the Partner in Climate Accelerator, where we invest in one or two companies a month and help them grow and scale through our network, arguably one of the largest in the climate and clean tech space, which you can meet some of those folks over at forward.vc, the number forward.vc, as well as our climate VC database. If you're looking to fundraise, we've got 900 plus funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs, and you can filter by stage, sector, geography, and check size. So if you're trying to find your ideal investor, we can help you do it. Forward.vc slash VC database for more details and to download. And if you're looking to pitch and raise funding from investors, starting there is good. Coming here is also great. TheStartupTank.com if you want to apply for an upcoming session. We've got our sharks here already uh, lined up and on the program. Everyone is on time, which is an absolute rarity. And we would give five minutes to each of the companies here to present, followed by five to 15 or so minutes of Q&A with our esteemed panelists. So I might as well welcome folks over to uh, the, the panel side of things and share first. We've got Dennis with uh, Xeon Ventures. Dennis, you want to share a little bit more about what you're doing? Sure. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, thank you very much, Matt, for the uh, invitation. My name is Dennis Clark. I'm an investment director at Xeon Ventures. Uh, Xeon Ventures is an early stage uh, venture capital firm investing across um, climate and sustainability, advanced materials, and human health. Uh, we're backed by Xeon Corporation, a multinational elastomer, polymer, and specialty materials company. And our sweet spot is primarily Series A and B uh, startups. Thank you very much. Awesome. Thanks, Dennis. And Tarmo, you want to go next with uh, Nature Backed? Absolutely. Uh, hi, everyone. I'm Tarmo. You can hear me, right? Loud and clear. Sounds good. Good. Uh, I'm uh, based in Estonia, so it's good evening from Estonia, and I run the Nature Back the podcast, which is a climate uh, in, kind of climate investment podcast uh, globally. Uh, that's about it. Don't not that active on the investment scene, but more than happy to pitch in with our you know stock questions during today. That's the plan, and then we got David, the last of our dragon sharks. Hey everyone, David J. Neff. I'm out of Austin, Texas, over in the US. Uh, our firm is Ecliptic Capital. We uh, are investing in pre-seed, seed series A, fund one, working on fund two this fall, primarily investing in cybersecurity, medtech, and then climate. And we do a lot of material science work as well. And a lot of our material science people are doing very interesting climate. So thanks for having me and looking forward to it. Excited, and for us guys, Forward VC and our partner in Climb Accelerator, 12-week program. We take you in, help you grow and scale through our network. We focus on the big players when it comes to climate. So construction, ag tech, 
energy infrastructure, the dirtier, uglier, and less sexy, the better, because that's the stuff we need to decarbonize. There's plenty of focus on the things that are exciting in the climate scene. There's not enough focus on the things that are dirty and behind the scenes. So we'll help you build those businesses and scale them and build uh, build some meaningful climate empire, so to speak. If you're a corporate looking to connect with um, startups and hit your innovation goals. If you're a family office looking to invest in these type of companies or a VC looking to share deal flow, you can find all of that and more with us on forward.vc, the number forward.vc, as well as our Climate Techies community. Great place to connect with 3,000 plus of the top climate techies. We've got Slack and WhatsApp communities and channels on every kind of sector you could hope to network in. Forward.vc slash techies for more details. But that's enough from me and enough blabbering about uh, promotional stuff. We've got incredible companies, including incredible companies, kind of really far into the night, so to speak, that uh, that need to pitch. So Sam, you want to share what you guys are doing with uh, NOSCSR? and uh, how you guys are trying to make this a bit more transparent? Sure, sure. Uh, thank you. Uh, and um, I have two of Sam Lee that you actually see uh, uh, because, because my, my use. You know, you know what? what, I'm, I'm just, just gonna, gonna take, take off one. one. Apologies. I muted him, like I muted him for you, you should be screen. good. There you go. Um, and then once you're ready, you'll have five minutes sharing the screen, pitching the company, and uh, I'll sure. give you a one-minute warning. All right. Looks good. Soil stabilizer. You want to take it away and how you're building the, the future of construction better? Great. Great. Thank, Thank you. you. So, so, so my, my name is Sam Lee. Lee. Um, I, I represent a company, company called InnoCSR. Uh, and we're into soil stabilizers. Uh, our main operating field is in South Asia, uh, mainly India, Nepal, Pakistan, Bangladesh, uh, Sri Lanka, et cetera, et cetera. And our focus right now is in Nepal uh, because they've got Himalayas and they're one of the worst polluted countries in the world. 37% uh, of Nepal's total CO2 emission comes from burning bricks and 23% of black carbon from the brick industry is directly causing the melting of Himalayas. Um, and the brick industry in South Asian countries have decreased profitability during the COVID because of global inflation of coal prices and labor costs. And this leading to a very low quality bricks because they are using a very low grade coals. These are the live pictures that you see at the site. Um, our stabilizer, on top of all the fourth generation inventions of soil stabilizers that work between uh, soil and cement, uh, our difference is that we actually can extract a very high strength out of the, this binding by deactivating the, the organic materials within the soil. Uh, so that actually enables to pull the strength from the cement and causing the pozzolanic reactions. Um, our uh, profitability uh, increase that we can contribute to comes from productivity increase. Uh, traditional brick kilns uh, usually takes about 28 days to produce. We, do, we reduce that to five days, seven days. Uh, so cutting down 80%, we manufacture indoors. 
uh, our good brick system, which is the whole process of making this non-fired bricks using our soil stabilizer, has an initial capex investment that is 20 to 40 percent compared with setting up a new fire brick kiln. So the productivity increases three to ten times compared to the fire brick solution, and this means more revenue, more profit for the brick manufacturers. Uh, we we have less input. So we need one-tenth of a land, one-tenth of the labor. Uh, and we're turning something that, like what you see on the left, to something that you see on the right. And we have much better strengths, uh, usually averaging about 10 megapascal per brick uh, that surpasses the global standard. We'll, we are much more equal in shape and better in quality. Unit by unit cost, we're about 5 to 10% cheaper. Nepal's brick market size is about $175 million. Uh, they, they have about 1,600 brick kilns producing 5 billion bricks. And uh, we aim to achieve about 40 to 50% in the next three years. Um, we are like a Nespresso capsule model. Uh, so once our manufacturers who are our clients, the brick manufacturers, they adopt our technology, we coach them, we give everything on the green technologies for free, the knowledge transfer is there, and they invest their own capex into this hydraulic press machines and pellets and all that. Once they do that, we actually supply them the Nespresso capsules, uh, which is our soil stabilizers every single month, uh, which usually comes down to about three to four tons of our material that has a gross profit of more than 50% and plus the extra One minute order. that comes out of it. One minute warning. Uh, our market beyond uh, Nepal is a $10 billion market in South Asia that is waiting. Uh, we've registered our carbon credit on both UNFCCC and Vera. Um, and we can use our stabilizer for the road construction as well, substituting the aggregates and saving the cost of throwing away the soil. We are going to hit about $75 million in sales in next three years and $30 million in profit. This is only Nepal's brick market. If we go into India, Pakistan by the end of this year, and our road system, carbon credit, all not included in this financial projection. We're looking for about $3 million at the moment, and this is how we're going to actually use uh, the money. Uh, my team is led by me with our inventor of the soil stabilizer, our CTO. Asha Kotari is doing our um, MDB and carbon credits, and our COO, Tim, is in charge of operations. We have a committed uh, funding from ADB Ventures, uh, one of the uh, uh, multilateral development banks, Asian Development Bank, that committed 1.5 million. So we're looking for the other half, 1.5 million. And we work with a lot of international organizations. And time Thank time is much. up. So you're raising, looks like a seed. Is that is that equity dilutive or is that a, a grant from the the other fund? Uh, it's, it's equity. It's equity uh, from ADB. Uh, and they will be taking about 10.8%. They gave us a grant um, about a few years ago, which they're converting that as well. So they're putting in total of 1.625 in this round. Uh, that will result in about 10.8%. Uh, so we have a valuation of $15 million post. Very cool. And what are you looking to get to with the funding? What's the kind of milestone you need to hit? 
the milestones, uh, we need, we're going to set up a mixing plant. Of course, the sales uh, will need to uh, stabilize, come out. We need to turn profitable. Uh, we have been pumping money in because of the COVID and all that. And we need to expand into Pakistan and India with the funding. And that awesome. is a totally new, uh, different game once we get in there. Awesome. I would pass things over. Um, David, do you want to go first? And then just jump in whenever you guys have questions. Sure. Thanks, Matt. Hey, Sam, nice to meet you. Um, uh, I know All you right. only had five minutes, uh, uh, so it was it's a it's a, a fast burn there, too. Just explain to me, I guess, because I didn't understand from the pitch how a brick is normally made. Right. I know you had kind of a quick overview of it, but if you're not familiar, obviously, with brick making, uh, uh, like what's your special besides you have a soil additive and I guess what are you replacing in the normal supply chain of a brick being made and and maybe just give me the the highlight reel of that okay uh, first of all apologize for for my face I look like a ghost right uh, my <laughs> camera is actually broken today uh, on the laptop, but you can actually see a glimpse of me. But anyways, the traditional brick at the brick kilns. Uh, so in Nepal, there's 1,600 brick kilns in every town, producing 6 billion bricks you know, per year. Um, and uh, they have, they actually require large land, usually, you know, three to four acres and, and all that. Uh, and then they would hire about 200 to 500 people. Uh, these are migrant workers that are usually from India or Bangladesh. They don't want to follow the labor laws. Um, and there is a bondage, bondage labor that's going on in this field uh, because half the year they produce uh, in the dry season, half the year during the monsoon season, they can't work. So they actually take a very high yield loan from the owners. Now, these guys actually mold uh, a dry mud, uh, you know, okay. using a one brick by one brick uh, molding by hand. And then they wow. would actually air dry that. And then they would stack that up for one week. They would fire with the coal. Uh, and then they would let it burn for one week. And then they pull it for one week and they take it down in one week. So you would actually see uh, uh, about 200 to 500 of these migrant workers in this large brick kiln scene, which looks like a, a, that they're building a pyramid. Um, and you will see all these child labor issues, also women inequality issues, animal welfare issues, you name it. Out of all the 17 UN SDGs, we're hitting about 12 of them. Um, hmm. And they, they burn, Nepal, in a year, they burn about uh, 1 million uh, tons of coal. They emit about 2.2 million CO2, tons of CO2 every year. Uh, and uh, they are, uh, out of 180 countries, they are 177 and 178 in terms of the air quality. And and no, no that that makes, that makes sense. Um, I, I think if you fast forward just a tiny bit, I, you know, the soil additive is strengthening the brick and you're also replacing that manual process is what you're saying correct correct so uh what what they do their biggest cost factor is coal and labor in the traditional brick kiln um our our composition is our good brick system is a 90% uh, soil and 9.8% cement and 0.2% of our soil stabilizers 
and we would use a hydraulic press machine and a proper pan mixer. You mix it together, everything drops by the weight, and then you would actually press it in the hydraulic press machine with the vibration. You air dry it, cure it for seven days, and you have a non-fired brick that is 10 megapascal. And and then my last question, I'll, I'll let other folks jump into, uh, why Nepal? Is there a connection there? You guys have done sales there before. Like, why is that kind of the, the target market? So my management team, we spent a lot of time in China um, before when we were having our early careers. And we've seen China grow from, uh, you know, zero to 100 over yeah. a, a decade. Um, and of course, our final goal is India. You know, in South Asia, they, you know, I told you Nepal has an annual demand of 5 billion bricks. India burns 300 billion bricks. You know, it's a it's a 60 times market uh, for our soil stabilizer is a 10 billion dollar market in the whole South Asia. Now, uh, in order to get into India, uh, we needed a, a very good practice round. And in yeah. Nepal, there was an earthquake uh, in 2015 that are still building the houses. So there was a lot of need for the bricks. Number two, the Himalaya that they owned, the Everest, was suffering so much. So it was very symbolic. Um, and they had, uh, you know, so, so and they were very much welcoming this new technology of God coming in. They also have a sufficient hydropower, which is a renewable, that was able to pump out all these three-phase electricity. So we have uh, right now about six sites that are using our technology. We have 22 agreements that we've made. So by the end of this year, we should have more than 20 sites in Nepal all across. Uh, with that reference and all that, uh, and this year, you know, uh, you know, we will have, we've started to get some sales and revenues in. Uh, we will get up to that level. So uh, with all that, we're going into India and Pakistan. Sam, this is uh, Dennis from Azeon Ventures. Thank you very much for the presentation. Right, uh, quick question, kind of drafting off um, what you were talking about, about the existing uh, customers that you have. Can you share a little bit about the construction industry in Nepal and the relevant players in the supply chain and how you've gone about kind of getting market penetration and, and what your strategy is there for customer acquisition? All right. Um, so the, the brick demand and brick users, uh, usually 40% comes from the government. Uh, the, not just the government buildings, but governance supporting buildings. They use a lot of um, all these uh, loans from Asia Development Bank or World Bank. Uh, and, and these constructions are coming with hospitals, schools, and et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other 30 to 40% comes from development uh, from the construction companies. Uh, they do real estate development, they build houses and et cetera. The 10 to 20% comes from individual house owners and they actually go to brick kilns by themselves and they pick, pick out the bricks and they use it. For people that are going to be our client uh, who are usually brick manufacturers, uh, we categorize them into four, the brick kiln owners, brick depot owners. We have uh, construction company owners and contractors. So these are the ones that are either following the bricks in terms of that they can sell them or they can use them on their own construction companies, also saving the cost 
uh, by producing it by themselves and having the brick uh, manufacturing plant right at their development site so that they don't actually have to throw away the soil and save the transportation cost and excess. Um, we, we actually are very good in terms of building the ecosystem. Um, so we've worked, we've done our stakeholder analysis uh, and we go with a lot of multilateral development banks. We work with the government. We work with uh, the, the Nepal BRICS Association. We work with the media, NGOs, and et cetera, et cetera. Everybody has different methodologies, but their common goal is let's actually switch the, the brick killing method, the brick burning method of how to make bricks. You know, uh, And we have actually from day one told the brick manufacturers that we're not here to kill you and drive you out of the business. We're actually here to make you more rich because the productivity goes, goes much more up. You actually end up becoming much more rich if you actually you know, transfer with our technology. Uh, so that has, and, and our business model is actually very much interlocked with their success. They sell more bricks in the market, they will buy the chemical more the next month. So this has actually very fastly, you know, uh, worked in the in, in getting the ecosystem and getting them to come on board. Uh, that makes sense. And then what's the biggest challenge for them to switch? Is it the CapEx cost? Um, you know, how different is the, you know, the good brick system versus what they're currently using? So right now, the biggest uh, challenge that they have is the construction uh, economy. You know, uh, that's something that we really can't control as a private sector company. Uh, but uh, the construction economy is still very uh, low and it still haven't recovered fully in countries like Nepal. You know, uh, we believe that as the uh, economy gets better, uh, the first thing that will actually move is construction because it creates a lot of jobs. Uh, so that brick usages will be there, uh, you know, but our adopters, their first worry is, will this non-fired brick actually take the market? Uh, you know, and, and, you know, will the customers actually buy these, you know? Uh, so we're doing a lot of public education as well, uh, you know, very fortunately, we're backed up by World Bank, ADB, very strong brands, uh, you know, in terms of when it comes to construction uh, and, and all that. So we're in pretty good hands. Great, thank you. Carmen, go ahead. I know we are short on time, so actually two, two questions. One uh, simple one, what's the footprint of the stabilizer production? Are we solving the kind of climate challenge with something which is actually green? Hmm. So the footprint of the uh, for our stabilizer production plus all the transportation and uh, all of that, according to our POADD, if, if I remember correctly, our brick actually pumps out 150 grams uh, per uh, per brick uh, production in terms of CO2 emission, whereas the traditional fire brick comes out 450 grams. So we save about 300 grams per brick. If you multiply that by each machine pumping out 10 million to 12 million uh, a year, uh, that gives us a pretty good about four to 5,000 tons per, per machine per site. So if we actually have a considerable number of these sites taking 40 to 50%, we're expecting about 1.5 million tons of CO2 
CO2 emission being reduced. And maybe the last thing to wrap up uh, the uh, basically what gives you confidence that you can actually replicate uh, Nepal to India or Pakistan because that's the kind of the, the the big story here. Right. So of course, uh, of course, these countries are little by little different. However, uh, what we have seen, and we've just entered recently into Pakistan, we just took our first trip. We were invited by the World Bank uh, for the reconstruction of the flooded area from last year. They're building 2.1 million houses and they need about 30 billion bricks uh, over next two years. And when we went in there, we found common factors, which is that this industry, the brick killing industry, had, they have not had a technological innovation in years. No, uh, but everybody has been pinpointing at them uh, to take actions and all that. And this cartel is actually vanishing because government is saying, okay, no more anymore. You know, as soon as we find an alternative technology, we're actually switching over, you know, and there's so much and, and, and guys like World Bank and ADB who are lending these guys money are saying, you know, we have preconditions and you need to actually follow these. So we have manualized our process and we have gained confidence in the Nepal market in terms of how to look at the soil how to actually uh, convince the bricklaying owner, how to work with the government. And this has gotten, you know, what took us three to four years now. Of course, we had COVID break, but uh, now we can do it within six months in, in countries like Pakistan. We believe that we can uh, replicate and go on. I would definitely have some other questions, but I want to move things on as well so that everyone gets a chance Thank to you. pitch. Thanks, Thank uh, thanks so much, much for, for pitching, you, Sam. Sam. And um, from alternative bricks to alternative uh, protein, uh, Eugene, you want to share what you guys are doing with algae and how you're uh, trying to uh, shift things up a bit with a more sustainable protein? Uh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So let me share my screen first so that uh, you can see my slide. Looking you... great. Take it away. You're good. All right, I'm trying to uh, minimize uh, my, oops, I'll come. You know what, I somehow lost control of my slide. Hold on a second. Ah, Jesus Christ. All right, so the name Sophie has a reason. Sophie is actually my daughter, if you ask. She's allergic to shellfish. That's how I got the idea to work on microalgae. This is actually my second startup. My first one was in California back in 2010. We are the world's first plant-based seafood company. The company is called Selfie's Kitchen. It was because I was working on Selfie's Kitchen. I was looking for ways to make a perfect seafood replacement. That's how it got me the idea to see if we can actually make protein out of microalgae. Now, these four words pretty much sums up what we're trying to work on. It's a much grander project, as you can see right here, than just the seafood replacement. Maximum protein, minimum, minimum footprint. That's the motto of our technology. Now, I hope you understand the maximum here. It does not just refer to the quantity. It also refers to the quality. And with the most nutritious microorganism on planet Earth, which is microalgae, I believe you can see why we are so confident that we can do so. Now, the whole world is moving towards plant-based. That's very clear. But then the question we pose to the world is that are these plant-based protein really the silver bullet that we're looking for? You know, at the end of the day, they still require a lot of resources. 
fresh water, wonderful land space, wonderful weather. And not to mention, they still carry a lot of bags, a lot of issues with them, including allergy, including not complete nutrition. So that's why we think the whole world needs something even better, something different. And this market research report also confirms that there is indeed a thing called microorganism-based protein, and that's a huge market down the road. So this is our solution. By now, we have already gone through over 1,200 different, different species of microalgae already. We have a few strains that can grow in dark in fermentation style, and they're really sturdy. You can fed them with all kinds of industrial size string for them to grow. We don't really have to just rely on sugar. But more importantly is that we have an added protein isolation process. And after that process, it's that wonderful color, wonderful flavor protein flour that in the future can be even cheaper than soy. Now, this is the difference we want to make. You go to any GNC store, you go to Amazon, the supplement section, any of the microalgae protein flour like Corilla, Spirulina, you ask, it's going to be like that. Very dark in color, fishy in smell, also very expensive in price. Anywhere between 30 to 100 USD per kilo. We want to create protein flour that's color neutral, flavor neutral, and like I said, it's going to be cheaper than soy in the future. Now, the beauty with this technology is the fact that fermentation it saves a lot of water, saves a lot less space, it also saves a lot of time. And translate that into a, onto a per unit production basis, you save a lot of energy as well. Not to mention that fermentation, we don't need herbicides, fertilizer, antibiotic, or growth hormone. That's going to be really healthy to the environment where we grow the protein and also to the human body who consume it. On top of that, our microalgae encompasses all the essential amino acids, all the vitamin Bs, and lots of iron. It will not be another super sustainable protein. It will also be another super nutritious protein. One of the features we try to make it green is that we use industrial side stream to replace sugar to feed our microalgae. This what turns out to be a wonderful idea, not just to create a circular economy, but also help us reduce our production cost. This is our product roadmap, and I guarantee you, you will never hear another microbial fermentation company talking about their product roadmap like the way we do right here, because why? We think protein isolation is very important because without protein isolation, all the protein, all the nutrients are locked up in the cell. And if it's locked up in the cell, bioavailability is low, functional property cannot be high either, and you cannot use it to create a clean label and to the food manufacturers, the cost will be high. So that's why we want to create protein flour that has a lot better functional property like the chart is showing right here. One minute now, warning. That in mind, we can then create a lot of different kind of applications like we illustrated right here. And most of the pictures here are real photos from our lab. We got a lot of IPs. This is our revenue models and go to market strategy. We're B2B business model. We also plan to license our technology. Our go to market strategy, we're currently at the first stage. When we're small, we're doing a lot of customization. And definitely when we grow, we will do a lot of standardization for sure. Now, this is our milestones and tractions. We started out in Singapore back in 2017. By now, we have raised about two and a half million USD. We also have three uh, small commercial contracts with uh, three not so small companies. As you can see right here, this year so far, we have generated about 100,000 USD. This is my team. Uh, as you can see right here, most of them, most of us are still based in Asia, but we have a bigger plan. We want to expand to Europe because all the customers are currently in Europe waiting for us. Thank you very much. 
And I hope you enjoy my presentation. The floor opens up for any of your questions. Thank you. Awesome. While I'm opening the floor and pulling everybody else in, what products do you currently have and what kind of TRL level would you categorize them as? So we currently have uh, two colors of uh, flower. Let me uh, quickly show you right here. It's in my stack. So we have uh, one of uh, the, what I call, what we call pale white. I don't know if you can see it. It's a pretty uh, neutral flavor, a uh, color. Another is a bit more yellow, yellowish. I, I apologize, the lighting is uh, making it uh, looks uh, all pretty uh, flashy, but I, I think, I hope you can see the difference. So we are offering two different colors of, of uh, powder, all from Corella Vulgaris. No regulatory issues, we're EPSA ready, grass approved. So that this means that the, 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 the manufacturers can use it to, to make foods to sell in the retail store. Honestly, actually, currently in the US, about a hundred store are selling a plant-based Swiss cheese that's made with this yellow one. And it's done by one of our customer, which is Sigma Alimento, a public company in Mexico. They uh, manufacture this cheese with our protein and then sell the, in the US. And they're gonna launch it in Spain pretty soon. So those are the track record that we have so far. Nice. Tarmo, you wanna kick things off with questions? Uh, yeah. Um, what about the, the kind of the kind of cheap cost base? You, you were talking about how you are able to do them cheaper than anyone else. It seems to me that in this industry, people have often been offering cheap as part of something which right. is really, really expensive but you seem to be focusing really on this kind of the mass production. How, how, what's the trick there? So at the end of the day, the pricing or the costing issue is a simple economic equation. Why plant-based foods are still more expensive? Because looking at the retail grocery store aisle, the meat case is still like three times or four times bigger than the plant-based foods. So as the consumption go up, we believe the cost will go down. Now, in our case, our fermentation process, we have to scale up the fermentation volume in order to scale down the production cost. Using our technology and parameters in our calculation, at just about 10,000 ton annual output level, we can reduce the production cost to about three and a half USD per kilo. Now, 10,000 ton, a year is actually not that much. A lot of the consumer brand that I know can sell for like 50, 60,000 ton a year. So that gives you an idea. Now, what's more interesting is that there is another research report done by a school in the Netherlands called Wageningen, uh, done by Professor, Professor Rene, Rene Weibel. I, I can even share that report with you. He believes that we can achieve just one USD per kilo at just 6,000 ton a year. A year. I think that number is too aggressive and he's a more like an academic. So I don't buy into that number. From my commercial experiences, I would say 10,000 is more of a realistic number and, and at about three, three euro or three USD per kilo. You know? So that, that would be, so, so the, the key is, is always gonna be skill. We just have to sell more, get people to eat more, then we can cost them. What's the current kind of competitive situation uh, of, uh, you know, algae protein production and the plant based on the land? You showed us the kind of the footprint that you need more land and so on. But what's the cost level today? So, you know, we actually need a lot less land, not a lot more land. So the 
for the same quality and same amount of protein. We only need about 0.02 hectare of space, when compared to beef, you need about 141 hectare of space. That's how dramatically different. No, now, not in, beef, but the plant-based on land versus... Oh, okay, the, the plant-based. Okay, so in terms of cost, our cost at the moment is still too expensive. Our cost at the moment is at about 17, 18 USD per kilo. But I hope you can also understand that when I started my first venture, Sophist Kitchen in California, I was trying to buy pea protein from Belgium. At the time, they were quoting me at about 20 euro per kilo. You know, today they're selling for the same quality at only about six euro per kilo. And so you can see how far they have moved on within just less than 20 years of time frame. And I believe we can achieve that even faster. But how much lands do the plant-based proteins need is I think what he's asking. How does the hectares compare? Right, so it's, I have, I have a slide there. I forgot the number, but I kind of remember it's two digits. Like uh, for, we, we're only 0.02 hectare. Uh, for the soy and pea, they need about 19 or 20. That's, that's what I remember, you know? But the memory is foggy, so don't don't, don't hold me for that. I can share with you the number later on. It's in my yeah. file somewhere. Yeah, uh, your ten uh, plus patents or the pending patents. Uh, sure. Which part of the kind of the whole chain they are in? I like the question. So um, the string itself currently is not protected by the patent because. As you can realize, once you tell people how you breed, it's like breeding the cattle. You know, you breed the best cow for the meat or for the milk. Once you tell people how you do it, everybody knows, right? And you, there's no way to, to protect it. So that's why the strain itself is not patent protected. Now, the fermentation process, there are quite a few things that we can use patent to protect ourselves. So we have a few patents filed right there. The protein isolation process also have a few patents as well that we file right there. The, the application of our protein is also can be patent protected. And that's pretty lucrative because that potentially can lock up your potential competition from going into your market. Because that's what Roquette, the French company has been doing with their pea protein. I've been heard that they've been arsenalized so many patents that a lot of the, the places that can that, that, that food manufacturers or other manufacturers can use pea protein to make stuff are banned because of the patents, you know. David or Dennis, who want to take next? Sure, yeah, I'll, I'll jump in, it's okay. Um, yeah, Eugene, thank you for the presentation. I've had some experience in the past consuming uh, spirulina and it's pretty amazing okay. to be able to kind of achieve uh, this neutral color and, and flavor. I know that's quite challenging, at least with the spirulina that I've, I've tasted. Um, really interesting technology, but it is a crowded space, the alternative protein space. I'm curious um, how you intend to position yourself kind of within the alt protein market um, and compare yourself to other protein sources. Is it more like an ingredient play where you're focused on cost basis? Do you intend to have a more consumer oriented brand um, and market on taste? How are you thinking about this? This is the question I've been waiting for. I love it. So, you know, consumers, this is what I understand from my 10 plus years in B2C brand business is that consumers flock to alternative protein, not because, not because of sustainability, not because of environmental issues. 
but because of health, because of nutrition. That's first and foremost is the number one thing they're looking at. Followed by flavor and texture. Now, looking at all the offerings of the new protein around us, I don't think you can easily come up with one protein that can be called complete protein. We can call ourselves that. We can deserve that title without any doubt. With all the essential amino acids, with lots of vitamin Bs, a lot of plant-based protein don't even have a meaningful amount of vitamin B and lots of iron. So, so I am confident that we can win the game with nutrition. Now, having said that, I still think the whole world is so hungry about protein. You know, just look at my mom and my dad. They know that they're aging. First thing they know they, they, they should eat is protein. Everybody today knows that how important protein is about. And so that's why I think that the, the demand, the in, increase in the demand will compensate, will get everybody lifted. And, and, and looking at how the pea protein and the rice protein, because pea has this awful taste and rice has the heavy metal issue and cost is high, they still claim a very substantial share in this new plant-based protein market. I believe we can easily conquer a substantial market in the near future as well. So that's why I'm very confident in my product. Got it, great, thank you. So basically around the nutritional profile, that's the, that's the key, that's what consumers want, that's the advantage to, to what you're doing. Um, exactly, the, the, yeah, thank you. Really quickly on the production process itself, um, you know, like what are the requirements, what are the potential bottlenecks that you see to scale this? I know that can be, you know, cost is crucial. Um, can you share a little bit more there? You know, talking about scaling up, I, I don't know if you have read a lot about our industry. The bottleneck is still about the capacity. The capacity is just not enough out there. So that's why uh, a few of our startups, um, um, so we're talking to quite a few uh, European and also uh, US, uh, Canadian and Canadian startup uh, together at the moment. We're trying to form a, consor a few consortium together that we can then jointly and, and, and raise money with, with the, the contract manufacturing uh, 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 professionals that uh, possibly we can down the road hopefully jointly, join, jointly build up a bigger capacity of a fermentation facility so that everybody wins. Now, without the capacity, I think all the other bottleneck just paled in comparison uh, to the capacity. Because I mean, if you don't have anywhere to produce, no matter how fast or how efficient your, your process is about, it's irrelevant. It's just useless. Are there no contract manufacturers that we, you could use? Most of the country manufacturers are, are made are previously in nutraceutical and pharmaceutical industry. So their capacity, their ferment, fermentation tank is just too small for food ingredient. So for our purposes, we're talking about a hundred. What about beer? Liter. What about beer and alcohol? Beer, beer is one of the options. Yes. But for beer, their fermenter is a lot simpler than the bioreactor we use. That means that we have to train a strain that can survive easily in that beer fermenter, which is possible, which is something we're actually doing. We're talking to, to companies like AB InBev about, 
but that would take time and money to to make a new strain that can survive in a in say a higher pH environment, so that bacteria cannot easily uh, start it in that environment. And then you can use a dump dump down a, a dump down a bioreactor like the beer fermenter to grow it, or or any just anything, you know. So that's that's the the, the kind of technology evolution that we're we're thinking of. Great. Thanks, Dennis. Eugene, great presentation. Thank you for your time today. Um, talk to me about your go-to-market, right? I know you flashed your, your team slide. Uh, pretty familiar with SynBio, seen a lot of interesting synthetic bio and, and reactor startups. Um, and I think, you know, the, the valley of death is a uh, great technology, PhDs, academics, we're training uh, uh, strains, we're adapting our strains, but then we're like, well, great, somebody has to buy this and you need people who can go out and explain this, not at a PhD level, but at an InBev level. <laughs> uh, and also, you know, to maybe Dennis's point, uh, the markets you're going after. So talk to me about your sales and kind of your, your go-to-market strategy there. So like I just told you, I'm the, I'm the salesperson of the company, to be quite honest with you because I have spent my whole career uh, making plant-based food, vegetarian food. First and foremost, thanks to my family. Uh, my family, I was born and grew up in Taiwan. Um, we're fourth generation Buddhism and been making vegetarian food for three generations. So because of that, I spent my whole career making vegetarian food. And then I started Sophie's Kitchen. I then run into a lot of people. Um, Sophie's Kitchen uh, in 2019 was joining uh, PepsiCo's greenhouse, nutrition greenhouse North American uh, accelerator program. Through that program, I know a lot of people from Pepsi, from McCain, uh, from um, a, a lot of these uh, wonderful consumer brand businesses. And, and also uh, through that, uh, we, we also joined then later on Mass Challenge Switzerland, which we then run into people from Nestle, from Unilever. So, you know, I, I have, if you go to my LinkedIn, you will see that I have a lot of people in this business um, enough to get the first contact, especially companies who are interested in Pompeii too. And, and I believe, and this is how we get the first three customers as well, is that once we can get our first contact, the right contact, especially that's hard. Once you get the right contact in a company to be interested, then there's more likely you have a chance to pilot with them with something instead of just talking, which is not helping. Once we can pilot something, it's more likely that it will buy later on. And then Eugene, my last question too, I know on, on time-wise is just, when you find that person, you get the pilot, in that sales pitch, what are you replacing? Are you going in and saying, look, I know you use this at this cost. Here's what we look at. We're not at that cost, but we'll get there. Like, Just talk to me on the, the two sentences of what you're actually replacing to convince them to go with you versus you know, uh, 50 other people that are doing this? You know, the conversation in the, in the protein world is actually a lot different than what you just said. They often talk about, what do you have something new? And, and why is this new going to take off? You see, that's that's how different the dynamic in the protein world. So they're just chasing. They're just chasing a hype. Then they don't really care about the thing. 
Exactly. They're, they're not care, caring about replacing the old stuff. They're caring more about how can I develop more new stuff mm. to conquer new market? Because like I said, this market sure. just keeps expanding. And, and so that's why we mm. have so much nitrogen in our lake and river because so many people are eating so much protein. Even the urine is filled with a lot of nitrogen. <laughs> and that's why you create, we created another algae problem in the lake and river, you know? So, so in the protein industry, people, first thing people ask is, what is the new thing? What is the next new thing? And why this new thing is relevant? Why this new thing is going to be here to stay? And that's constantly is the direction of the conversation. And that makes it easier for me because then I can say, okay, here is the new thing that we offer. Here is why we think this new thing can stay and can, can be accepted, you know. Any other questions? Guess I also I think there. I think there's a lot of questions, but I think we got. I think we got to move it. Move it on. Unfortunately, I know. I know. Thanks. Thank you, guys. No, thank no. you, Shark. Was, Thank you. Thank you, <laughs> Eugene. Thanks. Thanks so much for pitching, sharing what you guys are doing. From uh, you know, let's jump back to the built world for a bit, and to now hop over to uh, let's hop over to EVs and simplifying charging. Charlie, you want to share right charge? Go complete opposite end of the spectrum. Hey folks, how you doing? Charlie Cook here from Right Charge. I'll just share my screen with you one moment. And while he is doing that, folks, if you're looking to fundraise, forward.vc slash VC database, we've got our database of 900 plus funds, incubators, accelerators, and CVCs. You can check out our program as well. New team was mentioning getting pilots and traction with corporates. That's basically what we do. And if you're looking for connecting and networking with other folks in the space, forward.vc slash techies, where you can find 3,000 plus other techies. You can join our newsletter, connect, network, set up partnerships, maybe find investors, all the good stuff. Every major sector that you might be focusing on, find the folks you need to talk to because it is all about the network. And speaking of network, Right Charge is building a great one. You want to take it away, Charlie? <laughs> Wonderful segue. Thank you, Matt. Hello, everyone. Uh, my name is Charlie Cook. I'm the founder of Right Charge. We're a two-sided platform for the electrification of homes. We're starting with electric vehicle charges and we're evolving into solar battery storage installations and heat pumps. Uh, I'm going to go a bit quicker than normal through these slides, but I'm sure you guys will keep up, no problem. So um, this is the market we're targeting. This decade will be defined by the energy revolution. And we're looking specifically here at changing the way that people power and heat their homes. Um, you can see the market is evolving through the next eight years, growing around 20% year on year up to a, a huge uh, total market of just under 200 billion in 2030. Um, we are focusing first on the home uh, electric vehicle charging market. So we're seeing a very broken market here in the UK uh, and as well as uh, in Europe and America. Um, we have a very fragmented and terribly confusing situation for new electric car drivers. They spend a huge amount of time, therefore, researching and trying to dig into the details just to understand which charge point they should install at home and who they should buy it from. Then once, once they've made their decision, it's very common for them to have um, unacceptably long wait times, uh, taking sometimes more than two months to get it put on, their, on the front of their house. And finally, uh, the majority of drivers are actually paying uh, more for their energy bills than they could do. Um, and they could be saving around £450 a year by, by switching to the right uh, electricity tariff. 
So overall, we found just about 60% of drivers found this process overwhelming and it's causing a lot of pain for uh, what we need to be a very smooth transition. Um, as a result, any company who sells electric cars is also feeling this pain quite acutely. So this is a quote from the electrification manager at Kia that more than half of the conversations they have with their dealers about challenges in selling electric vehicles are to do with charging. So we need to make sure this, this uh, customer experience is as smooth and easy as possible. We have developed a unique platform solution. So we've aggregated a network as Matt alluded to. Um, we are not a electrical contractor. We're a tech platform that connects drivers to a network of charge point installation companies. We've built a front end journey that simplifies the selection process. So now our drivers are choosing charges in six minutes rather than two hours. They get it installed quickly by a pro. We monitor how quickly each installation company is getting that charger on the wall. And we use that information to then manage the supply side and make sure that never drops below SLAs. And we've also built a tariff comparison service from the ground up that actually works for electric car drivers. And it asks them about their car and how far they drive and how they charge it. And all of that goes into some calculations to figure out the cheapest deal for their home energy. Um, Super quickly, we have, these are the two journeys just kind of uh, demonstrated. So a driver comes over to us from an automotive partner. Uh, they'll either go down the charge point or the tariff journey. And actually, eventually, they, they usually do both. Uh, so if it's going down the charge point journey, they get a recommendation, select the charger. They do a virtual home survey through our technology, take a few photos of the home and video, upload that information to the platform. And then the installer sends a quote back to the customer. If they're happy with the quote, they pay through us. It's Sort of like the airbnb traveler host experience everything's facilitated by one platform uh, and then the installation company goes and puts that charge point on the wall and the tariff journey if you've ever switched tariff compared tariffs it's very similar we ask a few questions we give a comparison and you switch provider uh, and we make um, we make money on each install and each tariff switch the future is to evolve this technology to apply the same system that we've built to manage the supply side for charge point installations to manage the supply side for solar battery storage and heat pumps um, it's the same complex purchase for a homeowner it's the same customers who one minute install these things uh, it's installed by the same installation network and we get customer data from one that enhances cross selling to another thank you matt um, i'll very quickly go into this but First, we accelerate market share. We then go into new verticals, solar and battery storage and heat pumps and new geographies we've identified are Germany, US, France and Spain. We've done a bit of groundwork in each of those markets. We're already leading EV charging platform in the UK, uh, installed over 1500 charge points. Um, we're partnered with some of the major EV retailers uh, in the UK so far. In the next 90 days, we'll be launching with our first car manufacturer, which is super exciting, as well as a leading comparison service and growing the team. Um, and our raise at the moment is we're raising 1 million. Uh, we've actually closed the first tranche of uh, 670,000, so 67%. And we're having conversations right now to close the final, the second tranche of 350,000, 330,000 um targeting mid-august and uh, time is up mid-august targeting the the rest of the close bringing in the other investors while i'm doing that what does tesla becoming the charging standard do for you guys just to, or go a, bit, a little bit on that for sure i mean um this is predominantly a public charging thing uh so our focus is on supporting the home charging space um 
they Matt, maybe just to clarify the question you mean as in tesla's public charging service becoming the standard for the public charging well also solution. probably coming probably becoming the standard for the private charging as well if you have one system having multiple systems would probably complicate things i imagine they'd have to at least be compatible yeah i think the the home charge piece has become standardized globally um very very much not like the public charging which you also you already have different types of connectors etc whereas home charging the type two as they call it has become uh the standard um charge point connector in 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 all countries then what do you view as your biggest competitor or your biggest threat anyone who uh could beat us to a partnership with a car manufacturer or a big dealership group or leasing company is a threat to us. Um, <clears throat> we are the only player of our type um, at any scale in the UK. Um, and we're seeing some similar platform models uh, pop up uh, in Europe and, and the States. Um, but we also just face competition from the traditional <clears throat> charge point manufacturers who manufacture an ind individual product or the national uh, electrical contractors who employ a, a, a bunch of uh, engineers across the country and, and therefore can offer this service to EV retailers. Yeah, it's a, it's a super busy field. Dennis, do you want to take things away? Sure. Uh, thank you very much, Charlie. And uh, full disclosure, I have a little bit of a transportation background. I'm a uh, reformed uh, CVC from an automotive uh, player. So really interesting to hear. First of all, I guess, based on my own experience as an EV owner, uh, seamless home charging is really key, right? And uh, um, I agree that for the average consumer, like the hardware installation, the whole thing is, is very confusing and time consuming to try to figure out. So I think your tool has a really interesting value proposition. I'm curious, specifically, you said you um, have, have a, a partner in automotive OEM that you're launching with. Um, can you talk a little bit more about without obviously naming what letter do they start with well we did actually i did actually i went through the slide super quickly we flashed up their logo oh okay uh, oh, you did. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah okay yeah yeah so, um, so the one yeah sorry go ahead yeah, yeah. no so how, can you talk a little bit about, how, about like what that partnership looks like how you um close that sale and then you know just based on my experience a lot of the oems they want to be in this business they want to kind of own that customer facing tool so how you were able to convince uh, the manufacturer to put you in that in that position directly? Yeah, sure. sure thing. Sure. So the logo was Mercedes um, and it's that particular deal is with the electric van team. Um, I think we we do a bit of press in the UK. We do quite a lot of trade press. So I'm, my, my guess is they found us through that because they actually emailed our customer inbound line, inbound email. And they were like, hey, we've seen you around. We're looking for someone to help us out. We've tried a couple of these you know, big players and it hasn't worked out. We've heard about what you're doing, that kind of thing. So we went to meet them and within a couple of months, we had a deal with them. So we're supporting all of their dealerships selling electric vans right now. Um, the volumes are not super exciting on the electric van front um but what is exciting is uh we had another so another global car manufacturer whose logo i can't put on a slide yet because we haven't signed the deal but we're quite progressed with the conversations um we've been talking to them recently about supporting across all of their car sales uh ev sales in the uk and then bizarrely um their european hq independently without knowing we were talking to the uk team again emailed our customer inbound 
email address um and said hey we've found out about what you're up to and um could we have some conversations about you know potentially working with you in europe um and that's incredibly exciting because in order for us to 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 land in these markets that we've identified uh the best way to do that is to have a launch partner that we can rely on revenue and volume from day one obviously hugely de-risks putting a team in those countries to set up so um yeah that's uh, that's kind of where that's where we are at the moment Great. Yeah, that's again, that's great progress to convince a, a manufacturer at this stage to work with you. So congratulations there. Um, also on the, the solar panel installation and heat pumps, what's your progress with that, uh, I guess, product, quote unquote product? Um, like, you know, it seems that, I mean, EVs are moving really fast at this point, but there's also, at least here in the U.S., lots of subsidies going towards electrification of the home. And that's something we're seeing a growing need for as well is that something you're building out in parallel that functionality or yeah for sure um so right now we're at the r d phase with those with solar and battery storage um we look to launch a product into the market within the next six months my my background i uh with an engineer i worked at a particle collider in geneva for a couple of years and then i did a master's in um uh, climate change management and finance. And during that master's, I built a model to like, accurately calculate the ROI for a homeowner on solar and battery storage. So we'll use some of that, use some of that basically to build out the technology, but it's, you know, it's not like rocket science. It's, it's you know, pretty solvable stuff. Uh, the challenge I think is understanding how we will compete in what, as you mentioned, is a very hotly com uh, competitive market for solar and, and batteries. So, <clears throat> Our strategy is to go through the EV via the EV, and, and that, that, as far as we're aware, is um, makes us pretty unique in that space. And what I mean by that is we're building up this network of automotive partners who send through customers for the charge point. We'll then develop a relationship with those customers. We've also built trust because we delivered an excellent experience on the charge point store, and then we'll look to take them on a journey to decarbonize their homes. And as you might know, once you get an EV, you start thinking about these things like, how do I power my home? And, you know, should I get solar and that kind of thing? So we're capitalizing on that natural journey that someone goes through once they've got that EV. And that means we don't have to play around like <clears throat> spending a fortune in Google ads and Facebook or whatever to compete against the other solar platforms. Are you worried about people going the opposite direction? Because it was obvious to you to go one way. It's probably obvious for them to go the other way as well. Um, yeah, I guess um, I think it's also not uncommon for people to get solar installed and then be like, oh, I'll get a charger. But the EV market is much bigger, you know, higher volumes than uh, solar markets. I think it makes sense to go our way and, and up versus backwards. I'll I'll jump in. Uh, Charlie, thanks for the time. Appreciate it. Um, yeah, I, I have to agree. It is it is interesting because obviously you have a couple of different paths for customer acquisition, right? I was just thinking back to my own like solar journey. Um, and there's so many of those sites, right? That you could Google to help you calculate an estimate, everything you just talked about. I mean, Google uh, has a competitor in Project Sunroof, right? Hard to compete with Google on that. So maybe EV is the, the true way to get in there. I guess, uh, you know, for me, I think a lot about that, again, go to market and, and sales channel, right? I guess, talk to me a little bit about that, right? It, the strategy is like, very awesome that Mercedes-Benz emailed you. You and I know that's rare uh, for that to happen, right? Or it to be a low-level person, and then they don't work there two months later, and then the relationship's gone, right? So 
you know, I, you had the quote from Kia. You obviously have probably been maybe talking to people that Dennis uh, used to work for in a, a previous life and others like that. Um, uh, but what's the actual strategy to go find those and break through in a way that there's not 12 other folks who are kind of doing the same referral and gosh, we'd love to be, you know, your front of the house for this type of thing. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> our, our most effective weapon, if you like, in that sense is probably our, um, uh, our, our network, but actually even more so is our investor network. So we've got investors mm -hmm. on board who know the C-suite for every dealership group in the UK, for example. Um, we've also got very, very senior people on board who are uh, high up in the leasing world. Um, and then we're about to bring on a chair onto our board who established Toyota's financial services in Europe. He then went on to do the same for Jaguar Land Rover, joined the Jaguar Land Rover board. Um, and he has connections UK, Europe-wide um, in any car manufacturer or, or large leasing company that we need to speak to. Um, so access to those businesses is uh, one thing. And then just quite simply having enough manpower to hold enough conversations with these businesses to really you know, uh, take advantage of the opportunities. The second challenge, we're a team of six right now, we'll be a team of eight pretty soon. Um, and we're actually recruiting someone full-time to work as a strategic partnerships manager. Um, and so, you know, that's going to actually be the first time in our, in our history that we'll have someone dedicated to, to partnership development, um, which should, you know, should massively help. But yeah, right now, just time is the bottleneck for us. And talk to me too, on the flip side of all this, uh, customer blowback, right? I, you refer me to three interesting people. Uh, I live, uh, you know, outside of London, I, I get somebody to come and do it. I'm like, not happy with it. Um, how are you kind of policing the installs, policing the people you're referring? Um, and then have you seen that where you are included in the bad customer blowback, right? Like, why'd you refer me to this person that was, uh, I had a pretty crappy experience with? For sure, yeah. And I think by any platform, that's always going to be a challenge, right? Um, I guess, first and foremost, we saw that the vast majority of problems people were having in this experience was just a simple lack of communication from whichever installer they went to. So that was problem number one. That was literally like 75% of negative uh, experiences were to do with that. And we built out the platform so that now we can see the data minute by minute, how they're performing. And, and, and we've seen a huge increase in NPS as a result of that. So I, I feel like okay. we've quite successfully hammered like the, the, the three quarter challenge. And then yes, you know, we are going to have instances where things could go wrong. I mean, um, luckily we, you know, we've got good, like good covered contractually if, if these things happen, but you know, the brand reputation is a big problem. Um, we, we've got an ethos. I mean, my background was at Octopus Energy. I don't know if you know the company, but it's like a young energy company in the UK that's basically become huge because of a very much like customer dedicated focus. So mm. for us, you know, compensation to 10 out of a thousand customers is what is well worth, you know, every uh, grain, salt, uh, pound of salt, whatever um, to do because that, that brand reputation is crucial. Um, we haven't had anything like serious happen, um, but our philosophy is to go down the same route as Airbnb when they had a, a S&M party in someone's house in the early days and that got out into the media and what they did was just cover the cost, you know, for like hundred grand or something crazy it was to do this, but it turned into a huge PR opportunity. So it's always like, you know, 
uh, do the best by the customer and then you can sometimes turn a bad situation into a positive outcome, I think. Thanks. I think the the main question from here is that you have you have a team of six growing to eight and it's a global fragmented market where a lot of big players are kind of involved. I mean, shouldn't you be growing faster? I mean, it seems that the, uh, you know, the ambition or the kind of the speed is, I mean, would be expecting more. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, yeah, for sure. I mean, I'd, I'd, I'd love to say uh, that was a simple solution. Um, I mean, ultimately, it comes down to fundraising. It comes down to hitting revenue targets so we can unlock bigger rounds. Uh, it's just about doing that as quickly as we possibly can. Is that why you closed the first two two thirds just to get money in the bank and get it over with? Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What would you need to ten x? What do you need to hundred x? What would you need to do differently? It's very much team. I think uh, Tamo's kind of hit the nail on the head. Um, you know, the technology is designed to be very adaptable to different markets, and because of the platform approach, I think we could expand into a new market with a skeleton team of a very small amount of people uh, so it's not expensive but it's just a case of um, having the funding to expand the team um, at the moment we have to expand our, um, our market share and and then scale revenues in the uk before we can unlock the sort of you know three to five series a that we need to really scale things up Fair enough. Fair enough. It sounds like things are moving. It sounds interesting. Wish you absolutely the best of luck. And uh, maybe you should talk to Ezra. Ezra with uh, Upshift Cars, they're doing fractional uh, EV car subscriptions. Ezra, you want to uh, to take things away and share what you guys are doing with Upshift? Sure. Awesome. Let me set you up as our presenter. You get everything ready to rock, and then you'll have five minutes. Just let me know when you're ready. And if you guys are watching on YouTube and haven't subscribed, hit the subscribe button and the subscribe bell so that you don't miss a thing. Would really appreciate it. Or if you're listening on any podcasting platform of your choice, et cetera, subscribe, leave a review, leave a thumbs up, leave whatever your kind of emoji of choice is to help us, because apparently that games the algorithms. Good, Ezra. Yeah, maybe I'll just do um, Acrobat. Um, okay, let me find the screen, share. I'll just do this one. Can you see that? Awesome, take it away, it looks good. Great, so uh, I don't know if people are aware, but about half of all cars in cities are only driven about twice a week. And we're building a car subscription service for those drivers. So these people are rarely driving and they're constantly worried about an expensive idle asset. Every time they go out to their car, they're worried it's gonna get a parking ticket or uh, it's going to be broken into. Uh, they're worried about maintenance and repair uh, and they're locked into a long-term you know, multi-year contract on a, a car that they never drive, even if their lifestyle needs change. Um, and if they wanna go EV, they don't have anywhere to uh, charge it if they're renting. Uh, we provide peace of mind with none of the worries that would typically come along with uh, uh, owning a car. Sorry, my phone is buzzing like crazy.
crazy. I'm not sure what's going on. Um, so we deliver the car to your door on the days that you drive, and we take it away on the days that you don't. Uh, we take care of everything like maintenance, insurance, and parking. Uh, uh, and if you drive less, you pay less. Uh, we have flexible monthly plans uh, that uh, can accommodate different kinds of needs as your lifestyle might change. So our base plan is four days a month. It includes delivery and insurance uh, and days roll over if you don't use them all and then expire uh, after one month. Uh, you can also buy additional days uh, as needed. And we also have an eight and a 12 day plan. This includes delivery and insurance as well as maintenance and cleaning and roadside. Uh, we've built defensible, scalable tech for personalized EV delivery. So you have a mobile app. You can actually set your drive mode preferences, uh, your radio station to get it delivered the way you like it. You can name your car. You can get a, accessories like a dog cover or surf rack. And then we have a whole backend system we built for delivery logistics, uh, uh, dispatch system, a, a delivery app for our team. And then we've embedded uh telematics into the car that comes with a fleet management system so you can unlock and drive the car as well via the app so we have uh we're building remote control car deliveries right now our team does it by bicycle between jobs uh but we uh are we have an loi with a hardware vendor to do remote control car deliveries so you can actually sit in an office somewhere and deliver the car to one of our members the member unlocks and drives via the app with no keys and then the remote operator will pick up and drive it back uh, to base to charge and and, and uh, service it and the um uh, we have an loi with a vendor we've gotten regulatory approval and we've mapped the cell coverage in the neighborhood figured out the uh, insurance as well to do these remote deliveries that's an asset light model so we are working on uh, a partnership now with a major car manufacturer on operating leases for evs with a discounted uh, incentive structure and then we have a a loan guarantee of up to $5 million from a regional uh, uh, government entity. And it comes with about a million dollars worth of incentives uh, from both the IRA as well as state and uh, other incentives from the car manufacturer. Uh, we're targeting 10x growth over the next uh, 12 months with the seed round that we're raising right now. We've, we're doing about $150,000 uh, in the last quarter, so about 600000 a year, mostly recurring revenues. And we're raising $2 million seed round right now. Uh, we've raised $2.8 million to date, uh, gotten backing from Third Sphere and Climate Capital, as well as automakers Ford and Mini, uh, done a number of accelerators, including Plug and Play, backed by State Farm, Avanta Studios, uh, Mercury Rays, et cetera. This is to uh, integrate that vehicle teleoperations uh, hardware I was talking about, uh, scale to a second market, uh, and to support all the growth that will come from the new automotive financing mm -hmm. arrangement we have with the automaker that we're building right now. One minute uh, warning. Technology operations and marketing primarily is what that's for. Uh, I uh, co-founded a Dockless bike share in 1999 on my college campus. And when I was at MIT doing my master's in city planning, I worked on the designing a shared electric scooter. Uh, my co-founder, uh, launched a social venture in Cambodia when there was no government in power and she didn't speak the language. And our team has worked at uh, many uh, top uh, technology and, and mobility companies, including Uber, Zipcar, and Fair. Um, and in the future, we believe most people won't own cars. So just subscribe to a car that comes to you. This will eliminate the need for all street parking in cities and reduce CO2 emissions by about 10x over baseline and also cut people's costs of car ownership by about half. So we're building that today and would love to have your support in joining us on this uh, path.
Awesome. As someone who lives in a city in Europe where you don't need a car, I can say not owning a car is great, and I would never want to go back to that. Let me bring in the other panelists here. Give me one sec. And while I'm doing that, there are a lot of people trying to do what you're doing. What's your special sauce? What's your defensibility? Why are there not going to be a million other people offering EV subscription services? Yeah, there's a lot of people doing different things, I would say. So there's... Uh people doing EV subscriptions. So you get a car 30 days a month and you can have it for three, six, nine months. Uh, but then you have to park it, charge it, uh, service it, repair, all that is on you. Um, then there's the flip, the other end is for people who really rarely drive like less than once a month, they're doing car sharing and that that works okay. But there's a lot of friction there. It's not very convenient. It's not always available. It's not always clean or charged. Uh, and so that what we see is from the data is people typically fall off and buy a car once they drive more than about once a month. Uh, and our target demographic is driving about once a week. So they're driving one to three days a week, five days on average. Uh, so it kind of fits in between car sharing and traditional car subscriptions. These are people who don't want to deal with parking and charging, uh, don't drive enough to really justify either one of those. Uh, and the logistics involved with the delivery component is pretty significant. We've built an entire uh, system to manage that. And now we have the teleoperations integration as well to manage deliveries for, you know, one or two day bookings, uh, typically, uh, that's a, a very different logistical structure than, than other services with a recurrent subscription. So you're focused more on, you're focused more on U.S. cities than places without public transit, I assume. Uh, we're currently focused on dense urban markets uh, that have public transit and have car sharing and ride sharing and all the other alternatives that are out there. Uh, because we see that that's where the the biggest sort of low hanging fruit, but we have uh, gotten a lot of expansion requests in lower density markets, uh, certainly around the world in Europe as well, uh, but also in low density markets like Phoenix and Dallas, where there's just there's no other option. And so if you drive six thousand miles a year, uh, which is our target average, uh, you don't really have any option other than to just lease a car and have it sit there five days out of seven. Okay. Tarmo, you want to kick things off? Yeah, uh, kind of from the homeland of uh, Bolt, uh, which is uh, doing quite nicely with its Bolt drive operations in some of the countries where they are open already. And I think they did like 100 million revenues last year uh, in, in, in the basically the same business you are building. What's the, I mean, the, you, you said in the slides that you are kind of asset light model with the government backings and so on. But essentially for scaling and speed, you need actually probably a lot of people to be involved to deliver those cars and this kind of asset light idea. I mean, you might not need to own all the cars, but you would still need to have significant costs. Yeah, as I said, uh, we're doing remote control car delivery. So this is essentially a lightweight driverless technology where you put uh, sensors and cameras on the car, a drive-by-wire system and a modem, and you feed that back to an office somewhere where we actually have remote operators. Uh, so you asked again about the differentiation, why somebody else won't just do this. Well, this is a, a very new technology. There's about five or 10 teams doing this right now. There's actually one doing it, something similar in the Baltics that I'm aware of. Um, and so we're currently doing, uh, our, our current deliveries are by bicycle. They're about half the cost of our closest competitor doing car deliveries. Uh, so we're already probably 2x more efficient with our current operations, uh, and we expect we can cut that in half again with teleoperations. Sorry. So it's a, it costs about $27 a day right now. I think we can get that down to uh, at least 16 if not 
even five or ten dollars depending on the cost of the teleoperations sorry deliveries by bicycles i got confused that you fold the seats down you put a bike in the back you drive oh. it to the river, you have to get you, you have to get home from it. wherever you deliver it you okay. got to get between the jobs. So yeah. The job is about two kilometers between different uh, deliveries on average, and that's a pretty good biking. It's usually actually fastest to just bike yeah. between those. Yeah, of course. Why is this not just a race to the bottom? Because if I need a car, the only thing I care about is it works, and it's the cheapest one that works. Uh, that's actually not true. So what we see is that uh, convenience is king, and that uh, availability is also really critical. So. Uh, the cheapest one that's not available or is way across town uh, is not actually any, it, it basically doesn't exist to you. Uh, so what we see is the number one reason why people bounce off of car share platforms and cancel is the car's not available when they need it. So we guarantee availability and we match our supply and demand to ensure that uh, we always have a car available. If we don't have a car available, we'll pay you $100 and comp you a day of credit to, or, sorry, for in exchange for a day of credit to go somewhere else. And that only happens about 1% of the time. So uh, we ensure that you will always get to where you need to go uh, whenever you need to get there. And that is not something that's currently provided by any of the uh, competitors out there in the market. Could you onboard Uber drivers and let them rent out their car? Because we that's the, no, no, but could you? Because that is either them adding the feature or you facilitating that would bring all of your, those cars online for all the times they're not using them. Uh, those cars would not have telematics or teleoperations in them and our insurance wouldn't cover them. So the, what we're doing is we're building out, it's, think of it more like Cruise or Waymo. Like we have a fleet of identical cars backed by an automaker. We put our own custom hardware into the vehicle so that it comes uh, remotely, uh, remote control dropped off at your house. You unlock and drive it whenever you want and then you drive off and it's all personalized in your experience so that whether you're in New York or San Francisco or LA or wherever you are, it looks and feels exactly like it's a car that you own in your pocket everywhere in the world at your doorstep. That's what we're building. That's how it's different. You brought, you brought up the white the automakers. Why not white label this for them so that Mercedes can have their own fleet and Honda can have their own fleet and you guys are the back end that runs it, controls it, and profits? Otherwise, you're competing against them, aren't you? Uh, well, if they want to do all of this, I mean, usually what we've seen with automakers is they try it themselves and fail or they acquire somebody else who's figured it out so like audi bought audi on demand which uh, sorry silver car which they then rolled into their own fleet we've seen bmw and mercedes try it and not really be very successful with it at least here in the u.s um so i think that's a that's a great idea i mean i think if, if we can get an automaker who wants to white label it um it's certainly an option but you know right now this is the closest i guess we've come to that i, I think that having a direct integration with an automaker is definitely um, a great way to scale. If you look at, say, Cruise, uh, Silver Car, uh, you know these are these are definitely pathways that we've seen. You might have to talk to Charlie about Mercedes. <laughs> hey, Ezra, David Neff here. Uh, I'm in Austin, Texas. Um, not as dense uh, as we would like it to be, so we might not be the best market for something well, actually, like Austin this. Austin is but... a perfect market for teleoperations because it is low density, so there's no great options there. And the regulatory environment is perfect, as is the way for remote control delivery. So I actually have my eyes on Austin. Well, well, let me know. What I put in the link was something that I went to in 2015 because Ford did this, right? Ford launched a very unsuccessful kind of oh, yeah. early ride Right. And, and I was there at the launch and, and, you know, a lot oh, of yeah. sparkle and, and glamour from our friends at Ford. Uh, and then a couple of months later, nothing didn't happen. Right. I think their failure 
um, was like, we're going to let nine people own one car and we're going to launch an app. And, you know, uh, uh, Matt and I are roommates and I got it on Tuesday. Yeah. He's got it on Thursday. Yeah. And, you know, Matt leaves my car a mess and I'm not happy about it. Right. Or, <laughs> or I do the same damn. So I, I get kind of, yeah. I, I get the difference in your model, but just talk to me about overall. Well, talk to me about overall acceptance, right? Like what is the stat that people now want the different version of this, right? Um, uh, especially in the U.S. market, maybe versus the European market. And then, you know, my my second question for you would just be, how are you getting in front of people to even let them know, right? Because again, I think the Ford model was flawed from the jump, but Ford putting marketing dollars behind it, right? Versus how you guys are out getting eyeballs on it. Yeah, I mean, we've mostly, I mean, we have almost 100 five-star reviews and uh, our members, if you look at our last reviews on Yelp, they all say we're the best car service in San Francisco, which is pretty phenomenal given that we probably have exponentially less dollars in the bank uh, to build this than any of them have ever had. Um, but the, you know, and so it's it's growing by word of mouth fundamentally. We're not even running okay. any, any ads. Uh, and so I think that kind of is is the perfect example of an automaker trying to do so when we started the company that's exactly what we we're trying to do could you and i co-own a car or nine of our buddies yeah. or whatever it's just too complicated you need a middle manager and you need yeah. to guarantee availability and guarantee that it's always going to be you know clean and charged or gassed and you know everything will be taken care of and so that's why we built just a, a fractional subscription essentially and said look you just tell us how often you need the car and we'll make sure that it's there when you need it and take care of everything and yeah, I mean, there was also Audi did something in Stockholm. They did the same thing like, about five years ago or something and didn't go anywhere. I mean, they they yeah. they had to shut it down after spending millions of dollars on it. So I think that's that's a, that's a bit, that's an important, important statement, though, after spending millions of dollars on it. Okay. So this will probably be a cash war where I mean, that's how Uber was versus Lyft and all of the other players. They all came in and it all came down to price and availability and service. And the the price and the availability are things that you can arbitrage with cash by binding more cars and having them more places. Well, I, so I'm going to disagree there. So Enterprise, Avis, and Hertz are all great examples of big businesses that tried to compete with Zipcar um, years ago. And uh, Enterprise uh, tried to undercut on price. They launched 35 markets. They must have invested millions of dollars, and they shut it down. They couldn't they couldn't compete uh, with Zipcar. And then uh, Hertz uh, tried to launch uh, multiple markets, Europe and America. They also shut it down. And Avis eventually just said, look, we're just going to buy Zipcar for $500 million. And that was the one that actually ended up working. The same with Audi. So if you look at Audi On Demand, tried one of our uh, member uh, teammates used to work there. Audi On Demand was doing... I'm not uh, saying you're going to lose. I'm just saying if they put lots of money in, you're going to need a really big war chest to compete. Well, well I'm just saying that if you look at the examples, uh, most of those companies have put in lots of money into existing competitors. And the, the track record is not so great. Uh, pretty much all of them have ended up acquiring those startups that they tried to compete with with cash and undercutting on price. So that, I'm just saying that's the track record. I mean, it's possible that it'll be different in the future, but I'm just saying that's the history. Okay. I'll jump in here quickly. Uh, Ezra, nice to see you again. Uh, yeah. <laughs> A uh, real quick question on maybe uh, piggybacking off of Matt, Matt's question on kind of like the unit economics around like what do your operating costs look like? And as you scale, you know, how can you make significant improvement in the margins? I assume you're betting on, you know, teleoperation that doesn't involve a human at some point. 
but then at some point maybe you're competing against full autonomy in cities. Um, so just wanted to kind of understand your, your costs and how, how you see those improving over time. Uh, yeah, I thought I had a slide on that, but I, I don't, well, I have, I guess I have a very detailed slide I could show. Um, it's yes and no. So I, I think that we're viable, even if autonomous or, or driverless uh, uh, never comes to fruition. Um, we've kind of built the model so that it's it's viable even with bikes. Uh, basically, our, our uh, what we're doing right now is we have no parking costs. And so the biggest barrier for car sharing is really making sure you always have a car available at people, you know, near where somebody is at the time they need it. And the only way to solve that right now is to just have a ton of idle capacity. And so they have about 30% utilization, which is very expensive. You got to maintain and clean and park and, you know, charging, forget about it. So it's, that's why the costs are so high and the margins are so terrible, frankly. Um, we have 50% utilization. I see a path to get that to 65, 75% utilization with more midweek business demand. Uh, and we have zero parking expense, even once we scale, uh, to be more significant, I think we only need parking for one, you know, for every five or 10 cars, we need one parking space. Uh, and that can be in a lower cost area, you know, aggregated in ways that reduce those costs. So that's really the, the big, uh, innovation here is around, uh, eliminating that friction point of, uh, parking being the barrier for, uh, scalability, um, it also means we don't need any city regulatory approval to do, say, a free floating model that some companies have tried. Uh, we can just launch it in any market tomorrow. Uh, and that dramatically cuts down uh, both your barrier to scale as well as, well as your cost, because the parking is actually almost as much as the car in, in many cities. You know, here in San Francisco, it's like $350, $400 a month for a, for a parking spot. Um, and if you want to electrify, it's really complicated. Now I need a charger for every one of those spots. And people have to remember to plug in. So uh, on the unit economic side, I mean, we're already uh, basically covering our, you know, core fixed costs of insurance delivery and, and uh, uh, car payment. Uh, and I see a pathway now to increase uh, uh, revenues per car per month, as well as increase uh, utilization and decrease costs. So we see opportunities to decrease cost of the cars, cost of insurance, and also cost of delivery with the teleoperations as we scale. No, I'm just oh, sorry. One one quick follow up. I just you know I was surprised to hear you, you talk about the demographics of the current users or the usage of the current users in SF. Um, and you mentioned you know once per week. Um, I mean, can can you what what's the, what's the use case? What's the application here? Why wouldn't you use let's say rideshare? Uh, in that case, it would seem like a lot less complex than doing a subscription service and having you know, fractional ownership type of a scenario. Yeah, I mean, most people are using it. I mean, our average trip is two days and 150 miles. So if you did that on an Uber, you would be paying a fortune. Um, you know, most Uber trips, I think, are three to seven I, months. I can I can attest. So we, we live in Zurich and we have a car kind of service mobility. We can pick them up from different places around the town. And it's not you use it to go somewhere. It's you use it to actually go somewhere, like sledding up in the mountains or you're visiting people who are hard to reach. You're visiting people. It's not to go grocery shopping because that you've already solved that solution somehow. Yeah, it's funny. So the mobility founder actually just came and visited us in San Francisco. I've known him for a long time. He's he's like the the first car share guy in the in the world. Uh, uh, but anyway, sorry, I digress. But yeah, it's it's basically to get out of town. I mean, if you look at why people own cars, it's you know to do stuff that's hard to do without a car. You got to move a bunch of stuff. You got to um, get out of town uh, and go go to do something outdoors. Uh, maybe visit some loved one who's an hour or two away, um, 
go to work. We have a lot of our members just doing hybrid commutes. You know, they go into the office one or two days a week and they just want the predictability that it's just going to be there and always be available and at their doorstep and clean and gassed and they don't have to think about it. Like it's just there. Um, that's that's a big value prop for them. All right, thank you. Very cool. And I want to I want to keep things moving on to be respectful of everybody's time. Ezra, thanks for the pitch. Sounds yeah, super interesting. Good luck with uh, shifting the, the EV market, so to speak. And if you're doing yeah, that, we're probably going to need some good ways to have predictive AI grid maintenance and management. So Matt, you want to take things over with Ping Things? Yeah, appreciate it. Hey, everybody. Matt Burton here with Ping Things. Let's uh, go ahead and share the screen. All right. Y'all see that okay? Looking great. Take it away. All right. Trying to get that slideshow button. All right. So I'd like to start this off. You know, this can be kind of a complicated topic. So I uh, really just want to start with who is Ping Things. So we're really three things. Um, we've built the Predictive Grid, um, an AI platform for energy data. Um, so number one, really started with the database structure built from the ground up about eight years ago. Um, extremely high performance, high volume, really the fastest platform and database structure um, for time series data ever built. Uh, number two is obviously making use of that data. Uh, there's a lot of power engineers, data scientists that are trying to use this data to do something, um, investigate that. And so we provide all those power tools for them uh, to be able to visualize that data, build machine learning, AI applications, all that fun stuff, rapid dashboarding, analytical prototypes. And then number three are you know kind of the uh, output of that work. So now we have these built applications, maybe it's impedance calculations to meet some FERC order, maybe it's oscillation detection, lightning strike analysis. And these are applications that we can then resell um, in the marketplace that we're growing. So that's who we are to give context to uh, the rest of this complicated stuff. So, um, you know, really the reason this is becoming incredibly important is because of all of these different trends that, you know, we always all talk about decarbonization, electrification, uh, growth renewables, and particularly inverter-based resources causing a lot of issues. Um, and through all of that, we're lo losing a lot of grid inertia. So if there's some sort of oscillation perturbance on the power grid, uh, it can lead to cascading effects because there's not these big rotating machines in the volume we need anymore. Um, and just a loss of, you know, retiring workforce, asset health is tanking, a lot of big challenges, which is why we uh, really need to start using this data. But what have people really been doing uh, in the meantime? So uh, it's historically been very expensive and hard to use the kind of data that we need to use to make better decisions. And What's really been happening are, are two core things. Number one is overbuilding. Obviously, we need to invest an incredible amount of capital in grid infrastructure. We see that through Inflation Reduction Act, CHIPS, IJA, all this really great. You know, we're still probably underspent, but at the same time, there really aren't always smart investment decisions being made uh, in terms of where, how, how to stretch out the lifetime of some of the equipment that's already out there. And so we're seeing, you know, rate cases, customer bills increasing 20% year over year. It's really not sustainable economically. So something's going to have to give there. And at the same time, um, safety and safety scores. So how long are power grids down? How long does it take to restore them? What are those customer impacts? You know, staying relatively stable. But when we start factoring in major events, which I'm here in Austin also, uh, another 105 degree day, I'm sure. Had to cancel a meeting with ERCOT this week because it all hands on deck. You know, these major events are increasing, and so uh, we're seeing more and more outages. So if we want to make use of that data, um, what do we really need to build in that case? So this is an actual requirement at the top. 
it's a certain type of sensor, you know, don't worry about it, but just 2 trillion data points a year. This is not a big volume of sensors. This is for a, a utility, you know, we work with utilities with five, 10 times this amount of data annually coming in. And so if we start looking at, okay, great, I wanna run an analytical model to calculate oscillations against these data streams. You can see with just legacy historians, even generic cloud solutions, you know, you literally have to click run and sit there for frankly weeks, you know, some solutions, you know, frankly, it obviously is not gonna run at all, um, which is why we built the platform up to handle incredibly high frequency data where, you know, engineers can analyze this, build use cases and applications, tweak the machine learning models and get an application out there within, you know, days rather than, you know, obviously what looks like month long timelines. And um, so what are those kind of use cases we're solving for? You've heard me mention. Um, One uh, minute warning. Oh, thank you. Impedance calculations, oscillations. This is way too much right now. We can follow up on this later, but there's a ton of use cases from generation all the way down to end customer use um, where high frequency grid data is very important. Um, just want to give you a flavor. Here's that impedance application. Took us maybe a month to build this from working with the utility for the power um, calculations and rapidly prototyping this front end. Um, and this is what all of our applications are, are now built in. Um, but about the business, you know, we've been commercial since 2018, received a pretty sizable RPE um, grant proposal. There's, I mean, a ton of proposals going in right now, certainly with all the money that's out there. Um, you know, typically we're a data services pricing model so that utilities can capitalize the software sale, which is very important. Typically about 80% margins for our platform, anything that's recurring revenue. Uh, we last raised about a $6 million round in September of 2021, um, and we're exploring uh, another raise right now. And um, time is up. What are you looking for? Uh, what are we looking for? Um, probably raising between 15 and 20 million. I'm going to start getting more serious about that in the second half of the year as some of our, um, these are our current customers, but as some of the current pipeline gets closed and we have some bigger utilities under our belt. What do you need that money for? Where are you planning on utilizing it? And what do you need to do to hit that next round or that or break even profitability? So uh, very fortunately, we were break even last year. Um, there was a significant amount of DOE funding involved in that. So, you know, that's not going to uh, continue in perpetuity. But really, I joined the company as chief revenue officer in February, really first sales guy of any kind. So we really need to build up the uh, go to market function here. Um, yeah, it feels like 115. Yeah, not surprising at all. I'll start sweating shortly. I keep the AC up. Um, but yeah, you know, we, you know, in this space, you know, our primary customers are utilities, longer sales cycles, um, a lot of thought leadership and credibility and relationship building is is key there. Um, and having that uh team in place that can facilitate that, as well as some key resources in uh data science, Golang developers, Python developers. And then, you know, a lot of our background really is time series data management and, and building that architecture. So we need some folks that are more focused on uh, power engineering as well and having that background. Awesome. David, you're in Austin. Want to take it away? Yeah, sure. Uh, Matt and and I can sweat together sometime. Um, uh, the uh, My question, I think the thing that makes venture capitalists and other investors like eyes twitch is what mm -hmm. you just said, selling to utilities, right? Yeah. And so I, I feel like what I've learned in the past year or so is mm -hmm. a, a lot of conversations and mm -hmm. then a varied amount of pilots. And mm -hmm. then the Death Valley is a pilot, 
right? And nothing ever comes out of it because the utility is slow to move. The utility says, you know what, Matt, I really love this. This would be great in our 2027 budget. And you're like, well, I'll be out of business by then, right? Hmm. Um, uh, so talk to me how you versus a lot of these other things that I think all of us are seeing are getting through that, that death Valley um, yeah. uh, out of a pilot and into somebody actually buying you and, and paying for it. Yeah, really good point. And you, you nailed it. That's exactly how it is. And all I've ever done to sell is sell to utilities. So um, okay. definitely a lot of experience there. So I think one thing that's important is continuing the push with a lot of the government funding. Obviously that's not something that's a long-term accretive to the business solution, but as a bridge through some of these pilots <clears throat> to get into that broader capital planning, that is really important. And also um, one thing that I, I'm very strongly opinionated about here is productization, commercialization, and really strong um, process around the customer experience and working with the utility. You know, you need to be out there collaborating with them constantly or a pilot is completely not going to go anywhere, especially in a situation like this where it's a platform and they need people using it. If they're not using the platform, zero chance of getting a capital deal. And that's also why we need experienced salespeople to come in that understand that capital planning process where, frankly, right now, you know, it's July. I need to be having conversations with every utility for 2024 capital planning or we're going to miss that entire capital window, certainly. Um, so, yeah, it's a combination of the, the customer approach and making sure you have some of those other funding vehicles to keep things moving for a couple of years. And then... Uh Talk to me about the cost to utility. How are you thinking about pricing this? And hmm. what does that kind of look like for the utilities? Yeah, you know, I think in if, if we were selling to a different market, it would be much more of a typical SaaS type of offering or maybe a, a pure data services model that's, you know, compute and storage. With utilities, you know, our goal is to fit into that capital budget where it goes into the rate base. And so in that case, there's certain, you know, accounting things we have to do and um, effectively, it needs to be a fixed price for three years, effectively. So really what we do is we we gather an estimate of how much data, you know, how much what, how, how much are we going to retain it? Are you adding sensors, this and that? And basically do a cost up approach right now um, for the platform itself so that we have a fixed price, three years can capitalize it. For the applications that we're developing and commercializing there, it's more like an annual license-based, kind of a value-based approach where we would expect margins to be more in that 90% range. And then my my final piece, talk to me about just scale of this, right? Hey, yeah. I'm in California. We'll try anything. That's fantastic. Hey, um, uh, you know, ERCOT, please boo them uh, in the meeting when you attend. I know that's great. Yeah. Not great for your sales. It's how most Texas folks feel about ERCOT. Um, yeah. uh, but, okay, great. Now I'm in Montana. I don't have an incentive to use you. Everything's just fine. Oh, you know, yeah. not a lot of folks live here. <laughs> Everything seems fine to us as a utility. So yeah. if, are there overall nationwide incentives? Are there overall nationwide legislation? Just talk to me a little bit about um, uh, how you sell to those smaller markets, but would be obviously a large volume of your business and not just the people that are open or trying new things. Yeah, that's a really good point. That's actually part of what brought me to this business. Like you can see um, GEB, a Colombian utility on here. There's nothing that is like a policy or federal regulatory driver for what we do. There's accelerants, like there's a FERC order for um, dynamic line rating, basically, a whole other topic. But so that can accelerate what we're doing. But really, the challenge is through inverter, inverter based resource integration. Um, so anywhere they're seeing a lot of solar and wind, 
they're having grid management issues that like currently they choose SCADA data. It's maybe minute, 10 minute data. You can't see these oscillations and harmonics that are taking plants down. Like we had an event in ERCOT like a few months ago where they actually lost a whole, like a gigawatt of solar or something from this issue. And so it's kind of like a natural, um, it's a naturally occurring uh, impact effectively that we're going to see through the energy transition that necessitates this. Like we're talking to um, one of the largest transmission operators in Brazil and they're like, yeah, we're going to run the grid on this data in 20 years. Obviously they're not there yet yeah, now. That's a long timeline, but everyone's taking it really seriously. All of the ISOs, including ERCOT, have actual plans to revolutionize this. Like a lot of this data sits in some database. They can't get it. It's on premise. Yeah. They're moving to the cloud. So a lot of, a lot of headwinds there. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Good questions. Cybersecurity risks around the data and potentially hacking in or other governments spying, et cetera. Yeah, definitely. Um, you know, a, a lot of considerations need to be there. Like with um, our largest customer, uh, Dominion, we're deployed in AD, AWS GovCloud um, for some of those reasons. But, you know, we're in AWS, we're in Azure, we're about to complete our SOC 2 Type 2 certification. Um, so one benefit is there's no PII, so we can avoid that. Um, our platform also uses data more for planning purposes and for like post-event type of analysis. Um, so in that case, there's some like NERC SIP requirements around that data security. We, we don't necessarily have to deal with. That's a, a lot higher bar. Um, but yeah, you know, we have all the security of those big cloud vendors um, and single tenant environments and strong processes to, to prevent that. Could you talk us a little bit about the competitive situation? Is there similar platforms out there? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so there's, yeah, there's a few categories of folks. There's like the, you know, just the AWS and Azure, there's the buy versus build, you know, utility IT teams like, oh, we're just going to build it. And, you know, frankly, it's taken us a team of 20 engineers for eight years to, to put this in place. And so a lot of our benchmarking speaks for itself in that way. Um, whether utility values that or not is, is another thing. There's the legacy historians um, that have a lot of bells and whistles and front end features and have kind of captured the market. But there's multiple entities we're talking to where they're increasing their price um, because of that market capture and folks are ditching them now. Now, you know, do we have all those bells and whistles? No. Do we have the performance for the data? We, you know, we certainly beat them out in that regard. So that's another category. Um, another category I would I would call just time series databases, um, which is why, you know, we've gone far beyond a database from the ingestion all the way to the analytical layer to the application building. Um, and then the one other category I would consider would be vertically integrated solutions. Folks who sell the sensors, um, have the platform, it's all kind of walled garden approach. But the sharing of uh, data within utilities is critically important, which is, um, you know, we have all that good API stuff built out, which is, is key. And the other factor is there is actually a lot of grid infrastructure like relays out there that have the sensing capability already built in and they just leave them turned off. They, a lot of the time they don't even know they exist. So the need for the hardware itself isn't even necessarily there. It's just, hey, let's turn this on, get a platform in place that can handle it. Why are your competitors raising their prices if you've got 90% margin? Uh, you said increasing prices was one of the reasons that people were switching away from other solutions. Yeah, yeah, sorry, I'm not sure if I fully understand, but yeah, so there are competitors in a sense that these data historians, they manage a lot of the time series data for, mm -hmm. for utilities. Um, and so they're in a position where they also provide a lot of services, a lot of services involved. Their pricing is much higher than ours is 
typically. Okay, understood. Any anything you do yet in on the European markets? Uh, no, not yet. Early conversations, um, but you know, international expansion can be a you know, risky business. So slowly stepping into it, and need to find some resources that have those strong utility connections and can. But oh, you know, we have a big partnership strategy that I didn't really touch on here, where there's some some partners that are more in that grid consulting space um, that we're riding some coattails out into Europe and more in the U.S. as well with those folks. Uh, one quick follow-up question on uh, te technology differentiation. Um, you talked yeah. about benchmarking. Uh, mm -hmm. How is this done? Is there a data set that's used kind of as standard in the industry that you're able to compare and contrast what you're doing versus other, other companies in the space? Yeah, and so I'm not the most technical person to give you the best answer, but we've, we've simulated data sets. We've simulated, um, so I showed you that use case example, like 100, they're called PMUs, these sensors. We've tested up to 90,000 virtual PMUs streaming in. I don't know how they simulate that or make that volume of data generate, um, but that's how we've done it. We've artificially created these data sets that will stream in up to the point where it gets very expensive to do, and then we stop. And a customer obviously has a proprietary data set that they can give you and other companies in a similar space and compare performance. Yeah, exactly. And we've done that like with Amrin on here. We had a that actually we used AMI data on. It was a super interesting project. We compared against based AWS, and I think it was 127 times faster than their platform and you know some other metrics in there. Um, but yeah, that's that's effectively how we do it. And then through um one of our DOE projects, there's some open source data sets that we've benchmarked against as well. All right, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Any last questions, folks? Well then, we did the we did the ugly sec unsexy of the energy. Let's go ugly unsexy on uh, construction. So, um, excellent, thank concrete, you. Concrete for change, Matt. Thanks for pitching. Thanks for sharing. It's uh, it's the little optimizations that make the make the big big difference, as well as capturing CO two with concrete. Uh, Dalraj, you want to take over and share what you guys are doing with concrete for change? For sure. Thank you, Matt. Just give me one second. Great. Hopefully you can see that. It's looking good. Okay, I'll just make it full screen. Hopefully that's full screen for you now. That is full screen and ready to rock. Perfect. Thank you very much. So hello everybody. My name is Dal Raj Nidja. You can call me Dal for short. So I'm one of the co-founders of Concrete for Change. And we're on a mission to remove 2 billion tons of CO2 uh, emissions from the concrete industry by 2040. Concrete is the second most used material in the world after water. It's used in all our necessary infrastructure that facilitate our daily lives. However, it is 80% of all global CO2 emissions as of today. And if nothing is done, it would be 40% of the global allowance by 2050. And this is uh, something that we des desperately want to avoid. However, what is lesser known is that concrete has the potential to be a very safe and a scalable form of CO2 sink. And so our objective of concrete change is to realize the potential and provide a novel technology in order to exploit it. So the solution we're developing, we can take CO2 from any industry with a particular focus on the CO2 generated from cement production. And we're developing carrier materials. So these are porous granular materials that can uh, absorb CO2 from these streams. And then they are added uh, to fresh concrete mixes as an additive, roughly in the ratio of 1% of concrete by mass. The idea then is that the CO2 starts to release from our material within the concrete 
starts to react in the concrete to be permanently mineralized and locked away forever. And through this procedure of carbonation, see the strength of concrete can increase, meaning then we can reduce the amount of cement needed in concrete to get equivalent strength grade concrete mixes because you don't need the extra strength. So with this technology, what we're aiming to do is make uh, concrete significantly greener, up to 20%, and also cheaper because you're reducing the cement, which is the most costly component, as well as a key emitting component. And what's great about our technology is we're not changing concrete production lines, which is important for a very conservative industry, and we can be seamless to adopt as well. Therefore, our value propositions are mainly threefold. As mentioned, we can reduce cement and concrete, which is 70% of the price and 80% of the emissions. In the UK and EU, where we're primarily based, uh, the big cement and concrete players are paying a carbon tax on top of how much cement they're producing and using. And also as well, we can sell our carbon offsets in the voluntary open markets uh, and concrete offsets that sold at a premium. Um, and so putting this all together, the impact we can have is for 100,000 meter cubed of concrete, which is roughly the size of two skyscrapers, you're looking at 8,000 tons of CO2 removed using concrete that has our carrier material and up to two and a half million in savings from lesser cement and carbon offsetting income. So to think a bit deeper into the technological innovation, the carrier material, as you can see, is granular in nature and can absorb CO2, and then it's uniformly mixed within fresh concrete mixes, meaning then that the release of CO2 can happen in situ, and it's very controlled, so much so that the concrete uptake and mineralizes all the CO2 and none of it is leaked during any step of the procedure. And it's because an added the concrete is very seamless to adopt. Concrete is already an amalgamation of different materials, typically cement, sand, gravel, water, and some other aggregates, some other additives. Ours is just another additive to go into the mix. Very minor change. Our current TRL is four, but we're looking to scale up quite quickly over the next 18 months to finalize all the R&D we need to do and get to the market by 2025. And to, the, to this date, we've had a number of trials and traction uh, since, uh, since starting two years ago. We have two of the biggest concrete manufacturers who are two of our current investors, uh, CM Cement Group and Goldbeck. And we do trials with them very regularly once we have prototype carrying materials ready to go. And we also have really strong interest from industry. Some of the biggest concrete and cement players have already submitted their interest for over 28 million meter cubed of concrete production utilizing our carrier technology, which is a significant revenue opportunity, as you can see. Um, and we want to license our technology to these manufacturers by 2025. Um, and so we want to take a cut of the, of the extra margin we, we produce for them as our license fee. Uh, and as you know, concrete is a global market. It will be $1.3 trillion in value by the end of the decade. One minute warning. In terms of how we, how we compare, so the main player in the market is mainly carbon cure. But I'd say our key USPs is that we don't change concrete production lines as comparison to them. We are flexible on source of CO2. And we're the only uh, technology that has the potential to reduce emissions, sequester CO2, reduce cement, uh, and reduce costs all at the same time. And all of these USPs have been validated by our early stage customers and our investors um, who have decided to work with us, even though we're relatively early stage as compared to the, the solutions that are already in the market today. And so we're raising our seed round to basically accelerate our technology, technology development from TRR4 to TRR8. So we're raising 1.65 million pounds with 1.15 already committed at a pre-money valuation of 10 million. So we'd like to close around by hopefully end of August uh, and then basically take it from there. And we have a really strong team working at the intersection of carbon capture utilization and cement chemistry who are really passionate about solving this really key challenge in concrete. And we've had a number of accomplishments over the last two years. Most notably, uh, winning the UN COP26's most innovative net zero project uh, in Glasgow. And we won significant grant funding from the UK government and potentially from the EU next year as well. 
And time is up. And while I'm bringing in the other investors, nothing here is investment advice. None of these are offers, yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. If you want to be an investor, you can talk to the companies. It has nothing to do with us, legal mumbo jumbo aside. <laughs> and if you want to learn more about us and what we do, forward uh, forward.vc for more details, to find our climate VC databases, to figure out about our accelerator, to subscribe to the podcast, to apply to pitch and yada, yada, et cetera, et cetera. Anyways... I will let uh, I will let Tarmo go first this time. Thanks for pitching Dalraj. It looks or Dal, it looks uh, it looks pretty awesome, and curious to see what the panelists think. Got a couple questions myself as well. Thanks, Dal. Uh, explain the basics a little bit. I mean, if you if only one percent of the cement is your is CO two, how on earth is it uh, you know CO two net zero? I lost my connection there. Go back. The, how, how can you reach the net zero kind of net zero if only one percent of the concrete? I don't is... think they're going net zero. I think they're just reducing overall. Uh, in the uh, slide deck, comparing to the others, there was a net zero with a green asterisk for you. No. Oh, I'm back. Sorry, I'm back. Sorry. Go. Can you hear us, Dal? Hello. Uh -oh. Let's try you there. Let's stop your video yeah. and see if that helps. Can you hear us now? Yes, yes. Sorry, can you guys hear me? Yeah. Tarmo was asking, how can you be net zero if only 1% of uh, concrete is CO2? Oh, yeah. We don't claim to be net zero. Uh, net zero concrete is very far away. Um, there is a vision for it, which we believe is a combination of sequestering CO2 in concrete and reusing end-of-life concrete um, as well rather than digging up you know, fresh agriculture and creating new cement. So what we're trying to do is basically a step in the right direction and particularly focusing on the sequestration of CO2 as a key vertical. So um, yeah, and I think the other part of your question was around cement and additives. So we're adding 1% of our carry material by the mass of concrete, but we're looking to reduce cement content by about 15 to 20%. So what that means is even without any of the carbon offsetting derivatives, if you had a, a, a traditional mix and then a new mix containing our carrier, basically the cost the costs are level, if not slightly in our favor, because of the material reduction. And then obviously to the carbon offsetting, you get the, uh, the extra margin that you're looking for. Thanks. No worries. Next. Where's the tech from? How did you guys come up with this? So it's primarily an idea uh, uh, from my co-founder, Sid and Michael. So our CEO, Sid Porfalo, is actually I'd say a concrete industry expert. He's been working in the industry for over 20 years, um, done his PhD in cementitious materials, and worked at some of the biggest construction firms in the world. And our CTO, Dr. Michael Wise, is uh, an expert in CCUS technologies and taking them from lab to scale, and worked at uh, one of the biggest spin-outs from Imperial College London as well. So um, yeah, we're not a spin-out per se. Um, we've just been, uh, we've taken kind of the best aspects of carbon capture, and looked how we can combine that with with concrete, basically, uh, and work at the intersection accordingly. And uh, yeah, that's that's kind of how it came to be. Hey, Dal, this is uh, David J. Neff with Ecliptic Capital. We've been looking at a couple of these, so a, a, a couple questions for you. Brutal market right now, right? I feel like a lot of investments in this, maybe great three years ago. <laughs> maybe great four years ago i think a lot about like battery recycling as analogy right there's so many battery battery recycling yeah. companies not uh, that we don't need them not that there won't be winners but 
Um, I, I'm just interested in kind of how you view the competition. I appreciate you having a slide and, you know, calling out the, the folks that are on there, but talk to me a little bit about competition and just your particular niche, right? What I've seen a lot of lately uh, is industrial waste mm -hmm. to yeah. concrete, right? Mm -hmm. And I'm, I'm sure you're familiar and you've seen that too. And obviously that is a very kind of uh, subsector that's interesting, right? Forget net zero, just we're gonna keep building. There are more yeah. people. Mm -hmm. So let's get our concrete somewhere in the right direction. But just talk to me a little bit about what you think maybe your three things that are better than your competition. So to your point around um, the industrial waste, just quickly. So this has already been well, well used by concrete manufacturers. There are some startups taking this industrial waste approach and let's say modifying it slightly. The issue is, is that the feedstock for these industrial waste, which are acceptable in the concrete industry is less than 10% of the demand of cement and is actually running out. So the actual the waste materials in the UK and the EU are going out by the end of the decade. So it's not a long-term solution uh, in our view, uh, but it's still a solution for today. Um, in terms of direct competition in the, in the vertical aquarium, which is the sequestration of CO2. So primarily you have two main methods. You have the most famous market leading method, which is probably carbon cure from North America. You guys yeah. may be familiar with them. What we're trying to do is, is inject gaseous CO2 on, right. on fresh concrete. I'm yeah. not the chemist or the scientist of the team, but you know, gas can evaporate before it reacts with anything. So you know, there's significant limitations associated with that. And they also rely on purified CO2, which is higher cost and has higher body emission. Yeah. Whereas in our case, we're using a porous material which locks in the CO2, it's chemisorbed, and then we add that material to a fresh concrete mix. The CO2 is locked in forever, and actually the, the release of CO2 happens within the concrete very, very slowly. There's no mm -hmm. leakage during the, during the process. And also what's important for our process is that we're flexible in any source of CO2. So the cement players in pretty much all, all the world, but particularly in the EU, they're being basically charged a carbon tax on, on top of how much cement, sorry, how much CO2 is being produced from their cement plants. And they have little route to utilizing that through gas. Whereas we're looking to say, don't send it for carbon capture and storage, which is going to add twice the price to your cement margins. Give it, right. give that to right. us and we will utilize it in your concrete to make it cheaper, stronger, greener. Um, so these, all of these value propositions added together means that we've got a, quite a compelling um, quite a compelling technology, which is, has resonated really well so far, even though we're not, we're still 18 months away from market, I would say. And then my second question is just talk to me on end of life, right? I feel like, again, a, a, a lot of these concrete companies are out. There is a, a, an end of life. Um, how are you guys kind of thinking about that when that building gets knocked down and is it releasing some of that carbon? And, you know, what, what does that look like? So what's interesting about uh, concrete in particular when you mineralize CO2 in concrete it's locked away forever it doesn't leak so it becomes chemically bonded it transfers basically um, the available calcium hydroxide in concrete to calcium carbonate which is like a limestone based material so even if you demolish concrete at the end of its life it doesn't leak the only way it would leak yeah. is if you heat up that concrete to like 600 degrees which is not going to happen in real life see if it does we're in, we're in trouble so but anyway um, so yeah there's no issues there in terms of our material once it's released CO2, it just acts as a filler. So it's not meant to like uh, degrade the concrete in any way. And we're doing lots of tests to verify that and make sure that's that's conclusive. Uh, and because it's a relatively small addition to concrete, let's say one to 2% by, con by concrete's mass, the, the regulatory kind of uh, hurdles to jump are, are much smaller as compared to uh, uh, 
bring in new cement, for example. That's yeah, you're talking five, ten years of regulatory hurdles for that in particular. So, uh, so yeah, the, we're pretty confident that we've, we've got the end of our use case under, under wraps. Dal, quick quick question on um, kind of assessing environmental impact. Um, has your technology kind of undergone any um, independent certifications to kind of validate um, you know your claims in terms of environmental impact? Are there um, certifications that exist? I know here in the U.S., like for buildings, you know they can undergo uh, certain types of, of certifications. But do you qualify for that? How should you think about uh, your technology? In that yeah, this is. There's two, there's two factors to it. There's the LCA considerations. So we want to minimize the emissions associated with the production of our material. And also as you say, uh, the uh, kind of building regulation certifications as well. So taking, tackling the LCA quickly. So we're trying, we're trying to make the production uh, and usage of our material as carbon neutral, if not negative over time. So the actual precursor for the carriers that we're developing is from waste streams. So we're looking at wood waste, we're looking at plastic waste, we're looking at um, silicas as well. Uh, so you're starting from a good base. And then what we're doing as a company is basically com chemical modifications to turn these precursors into carriers and sorbents. Um, and then obviously if you're locking in a certain amount of CO2, that also helps from an LCA perspective and adding that to concrete. So with the, the prototype carriers that we've developed so far, basically we've been carbon neutral, which is great. We, we tend to keep that. Obviously that's just prototype. We wanna keep that trend going upwards for the final product. Um, and then in terms of certifications, uh, so we're trying to introduce uh, our material with an admixture to concrete, which is basically the additive codes. Um, so CO2 as an admixture is a little bit of a gray area. Um, it's not necessarily fully defined yet. So there will eventually, and it's already in process, there are amendments being made to these different standards in the US, in the UK, EU, in Asia, um, because the regulators are very kind of receptive to, to new greener technologies like ours and others. And so eventually there will be new lines in these admixture standards to say you can sequester CO2 as an admixture. Only enough Carbon Cure are trying to put that pressure on regulators here in the UK and EU to do that because they're trying to do the same route. Albeit they're not using, well, I you can make the argument uh, admixture is a gas, I don't know. But in our case, we can get some material similar to other admixtures which are materials. So again, we're already in the process of those conversations. We're on the committees for the UK uh, admixture standards and uh, we're going to be doing a number of concrete tests accelerated durability set to, to prove, that, prove that out over the next 12 to 18 months. Great, thank you. No awesome, it sounds, it sounds super interesting. Any last questions, folks, before we jump to our last segment of the show, the, the climate startup of the night? It looked like a lot of, speaking of, a lot of our startups had to jump off probably for LP or customer calls, totally, uh, not LP, sorry, uh, investor or customer calls. But now we jump to the last segment of the show, the, the climate startup of the night. This is where we vote our favorite one, two companies of the night and see if we can find some consensus on who was the, the most promising company. So how we do this is, David, you get to go first because Zoom puts your head on top of the video. So let's see, uh, who are you most interested in? Who would you want to meet with? Who do you think would be potentially a great investment? What one or two companies are you most interested in and why? Yeah, definitely. I'm, I'm biased because we are looking for a lot of I think the concrete built environment is one of our climate thesis uh, areas at uh, Ecliptic Capital, right? Um, a lot of standards, a lot of safety. We've invested in a fireproofing nanoparticle, and you can imagine how many tests fireproofing has to go through. And obviously, what does this concrete look like five years, 10 years, 15 years down the road? So a lot of risks, um, but very interesting. Uh, that would be one where I want to continue the conversation uh, with, with Dahl and, and some of his co-founders afterwards. 
And then, uh, although we don't invest in this area, um, uh, as a firm, I, I found um, the bionutrients company very interesting. Again, we're looking at a lot of uh, synthetic bio. More in our world, it's in material science and not food science, right? Um, replacements for polymers, plastics, the ability to uh, uh, grow things that get turned into acrylics, right? Uh, things like that. Very interesting to us. So a little off topic because, you know, they're obviously focused more on food, but I like where they're going. I think that's personally interesting. Um, and there's probably a lot of, uh, how did he phrase it? Food hype <laughs> that they take advantage of, right? They're not looking to replace something. People are just always on to the next hype cycle, which is both a risk uh, and something that's attractive as far as that company, maybe getting some investment, Maybe they hit a triple, uh, to use a, a, a tired sports analogy. Maybe they hit a home run there, and then that company gets picked up pretty soon. Um, so again, not a, a fit for us, but interesting to myself. I would say them, and then I would say the concrete for change votes. Awesome. Dennis, you're up next. Sure. Yeah. First of all, thank you, everyone, for the presentations. I really enjoyed it. I felt like there was a really diverse set of, of companies with interesting value propositions, great entrepreneurs. Uh, for me as well, I concur with um, David. So we look at food tech. We haven't done an investment yet in the space, but we're actively looking at this space. And I know it's a crowded space, uh, but a little bit contrary in a sense that I believe that there's lots of, um, you know, obviously pressures, market pressures, environmental pressures um, that uh, will dictate us having to move to alternative proteins. Um, and so it's an interesting space. Um, Really interested in, in the, the process specifically um, that uh, Eugene outlined. Um, the nutritional profile was interesting to me. I'd like to dive a little bit deeper on that. So would love to follow up with um, Eugene and, and group after and have a conversation offline. A second one for me, uh, also not a space that we're actively looking at necessarily, but was really impressed with right charge and the traction they've been able to, to get um, you know, in the industry that they're, they're in. Uh, so again, it's it's pretty difficult to get, it's easy to get pilots with OEMs, but it's difficult to um, get an OEM to put you out there in front of a customer. Um, and so really impressed with what they've done with Mercedes. Um, and yeah, would love to, to learn more. And then Tarmo. He's even got the notebook. He just forgot to unmute himself. Super professional. Ah, uh, yes, I am the uh, you know real old old school journalist. The uh, on both sides, the muting and the notebook. The <laughs> the uh, I think I think uh, on the Eugene and uh, Olga proteins, I do have to agree that they were definitely one of the most interesting startups of the session. The uh, I was uh, lucky enough to give a call to the friend who's building an Olga startup before the before this session and uh, he really challenged the idea of scalability and I think the uh, Eugene answered these questions quite nicely and explained how how they can grow this business um, I think yeah I agree I agree on that definitely the, the other one I would kind of pick up also you know not the classical VC case but the Nepalese uh, brick producer was actually quite interesting case as a journalist, that, that would, they would be probably the first one I would write about. They would be a, they would be an exciting story. Absolutely. And, and then I guess 
last but not least is yours truly. Um, I liked uh, I liked um, Sophie's bionutrients as well, Eugene. I think it's really interesting. I think the more we can grow in water, the more efficient we can grow. And I do think that that uh, protein source kind of trumps all of the pretty inferior plant-based protein sources out there. I would say, yeah, clear winner, Eugene, just like David said. And then I was also pretty impressed by what right charge is done without a whole lot of help and um, what concrete for change potentially can do. But all the companies that pitched, super interesting, very good job even getting here. We had to screen through lots of companies to get you. And if you guys are looking to pitch or apply in the future, the startuptank.com, you can find the application there. It'll also give you the application for our climate accelerator. So if you want to be part of our partner in climate program, we go all in with you, invest in one or two companies a month, and then make dozens to hundreds of intros to corporates, customers, clients, partners, pilot players, et cetera, to get you the traction you need because as an early stage climate startup, nothing's more important than proving out your technology and getting those big name checks. Hence why we're ex all excited about Right Charge and what they've done with Mercedes. Uh, David, you want to go next? Where can people find out more about you and what you're doing? Sure. Yeah. So uh, Ecliptic Capital, uh, ecliptic.capital. Uh, Twitter account is Ecliptic Capital. LinkedIn is Ecliptic Capital as well. Personally, uh, I'm at Dave I am on Twitter. Um, and uh, a lot of things, whatever's going to come after Twitter. Uh, yeah, don't you, mean, don't you mean don't you mean X? Let's see if that's still X, relevant. Uh, mm -hmm. Don't forget Mastodon, Blue Sky, Threads, uh, all of the things, Matt. Uh, so you can go find us. We're the same. Uh, Dave, I am uh, is kind of my personal handle. You'll find that across all things as well. And happy to connect with folks on LinkedIn as well. And we published our climate thesis um, a couple months ago where we break out the areas that we're actively investing in. So love folks to go and, and see that. And I'll also promote later on this year, we're doing a pretty comprehensive research paper uh, on investment in AI in each of the areas that we're really concentrating and caring about. So you can think of that as um, a, a second part of that climate investment is how AI is affecting climate and, and climate tech and how we're thinking about it as investors. So that's us, Ecliptic Capital. And awesome. Dennis, what about you? Yes, thank you. Thanks everyone again for uh, wonderful presentations. Uh, Dennis, uh, you can find me at uh, Dennis at Zayon.Ventures. Uh, our website as well is www.zayon.ventures. I'm also active on uh, LinkedIn as well. Awesome. And then Tarmo, plug the podcast. Where can people find you? Uh, thanks. Basically, go to NatureBact on whatever platform you're listening to your podcasts on. Uh, it should be available on all of them. Just nature backed together, you know, looking, talking with the investors and talking with uh, green tech entrepreneurs about the future of this planet, if we have one. Yeah, if we have one. And if you want the inside scoop on me, you can find uh, the interview I did with Tarmo a while back as well on Nature Backs. Just check it out, Matt Ward, Nature Backed. And you guys, if you need a partner in Climb, someone to help you grow and scale the company, forward.vc will be the most hands-on investor or player you've ever seen. If you're trying to fundraise, we've got our Climate VC database. You can find it here and on our site, forward.vc slash VC database. Join Climate Techies. We've got a Climate Solutions database as well for corporates, 
uh, governments, smart cities, consultants to find you. And then we've got the startup tank, which is just the startuptank.com. Apply there. You can subscribe there. Everything's pretty much there. Just find us forward.vc. We invest in companies that move the world forward. We'll talk to you guys later. It's, uh, it's time to move this forward because it's been a long one. Cheers, folks. Ciao. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to another segment of the Startup Tank Climate Investor Pitch Show presented by Forward VC. I'm your host, Matt Ward, serial founder, climate investor, and partner at Forward VC's Angel Syndicate, investing in companies that move the world forward. To learn more about me, download my free growth and fundraising guides, or to get help scaling your company, please visit mattward.io. If you're interested in pitching on a future segment of The Startup Tank, please visit thestartuptank.com. And if you're a credit investor interested in investing alongside us in top climate and impact companies that move the world forward, please visit forward.vc for more details and to apply.